and some introduced me as the hip-hop Bruce Lee because I fuse G Kondo into the flow of the music. Hello and welcome to the That's Why They Were Quality podcast where we analyse, review and discuss all things that are quality. On this episode we continue to talk about one of the most quality geezers to have existed. Apart from all the cheating on his wife stuff, that wasn't one very quality. Brandishing uh, knives as a kid. Brandishing knives, again, not very good. But apart from that, a quality geezer. He's, of course, Bruce Lee. And oh, we're you're on... going to say my name then. Oh, 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 yeah, of course. And I'm joined by another quality geezer. And, and one of the most quality geezers to have existed. Uh, apart from the supporting Everton and all of that business. <laughs> it's uh, Paddy Stanton. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Geezer, especially um, that Everton introduction. I mean, I know what you said there about them being the best team in the world. It's it's well-deserved accolades. And, yeah, excited for this uh, part four. We've, uh, yeah, we, we went quite into depth quite a lot with Bruce. Uh, I'm looking forward to going into his films and that sort of, and more like early end, the later end of his career. It's more probably like is known as famous stuff, isn't it? More, probably more interesting part because that's when like shit starts to hit the fan. So I'm excited. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, Liverpool, the best team in, in the world. So, you know, world champions. And my name's Lewis Sanchez, by the way. Support Liverpool. Uh, same <laughs> word, geezer, a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, single five and years. You know the drill. Somehow has some sort of streak going on that we may have mentioned once or twice. Yeah, the streak is still going on. I'm I'm uh, five and a half years into it now. Well, that's what we need. We need the countdown clock. That's what we need. We need the website get going. There's going to be a countdown clock. I want to get that sorted at some point. And obviously, if you haven't seen it yet, everyone go out and check out the Geese Nation YouTube channel, which we've started now, because Lewis's first video on there, it was his top 11 things that have happened since his dry spell, and it's absolutely hilarious. So make sure you check that out. Oh, thank you very much, Gator. It's very nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, go on, Lou. Um, yeah. I've got to bring up this this little thing that's, that did that happen. Like, it's a few months back now, and I just, I haven't forgot it since. It was, like, the, maybe the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Like, like, I got on Instagram, I actually put up a post of, a post of one of our podcasts, and it was a picture of a tribe called Quest. And I love tribe, and you love tribe, and we did a seven-part series on them. And finally, we got our just reward. And it was a like from Q-Tip, the abstract. Q-Tip, the main geezer, the man that you would if you was, even though you are. Probably he not. liked that picture, and I will never, ever let this down. Oh, that's good. That's good, good news, you know. Um, but, you know, if, yeah, we, we, we talked about that, I think, didn't we, on the previous episode? Um, we talked about it, but we don't talk about it enough because it just shows the art of me and my marketing skills. It shows that I made for Insta. If I wanted to be an influencer, God damn it, I could be. And it's all because Q-Tip liked the picture. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good, it's good. But, um, but, 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 you know, yeah, we talked about that. So, uh, so, but it's good though. Q-Tip out there. You know, pass the word on to Ali Shahid and the old uh, and the old Jerobi. Uh, and, Don't and... underrate it. Do not underrate this. This is my claim to fame, and I'll never let this go. I mean, uh, I got the the podcast uh, liked by um, who's the geezer who used to do Roberto Del Rio's. Um, what's his Ricardo name? Rodriguez. Ricardo Rodriguez. That's it. He, he liked the podcast. I don't think it's the same. He's he was good on the mic. You know, he he, he could he could have spit some bars. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, yeah. So you know who was good on the mic? That's Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Promo very... skills were turned up to 100. 
Yes, they yeah. were. And one of some of the promo skills helped to incite a fight with um, with one Jack Man, which we've we've previously covered. Uh, this point in the story, this is about mid sixties, and he is uh, he is in the midst of teaching his philosophy of kung fu, Jeet Kune Do, nineteen sixty seven to be exact. And I wanted to start off this episode, part four of the podcast series, by answering or, or sort of talking about a question that is brought up a lot around Bruce Lee. And that is, was Bruce Lee the godfather of MMA? Ooh. Not, not the porn star. <laughs> oh, yeah, we already <laughs> took a look at that one. Been, yeah. st- been, been going back to MMA, though. I've been going back to MMA since you told me about it. Very nice, isn't she? Very nice. Yeah, yeah. But this is a good fucking excellent question because we discussed how he did mix in. So he was he was going to all the masters of judo, of, of grappling, of boxing, striking. You know, Muhammad Ali was his idol, uh, one of his idols, and so he was he was taking little bits from all these other combat sports, and he was, and he was you know mixing them in there. But it's whether he he had the foresight to say like I'm going to make an actual sport out of this. Now it's hard to say, but I mean. I don't think he would, because he at the end of the day he was more of an actor. He his heart was set on drama, his heart was set on making money that way. So we did have a huge influence on it, but the the Godfather of MMA it's hard to answer because he he didn't invent the sport essentially, and and he had no idea it was a thing to the he wouldn't have no idea. So and obviously for me where MMA actually came from I think was the Inokiar Lee match. I don't know if you agree. Well, um, it's an interesting one. I think to talk about, like, to answer the question, you know, did Bruce Lee invent MMA or, or who invented MMA in general? I think uh, we first have to talk about the popular recording artist, uh, Cindy Lauper, and her song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. <laughs> now, I'll explain that in a bit. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 make sure you do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's relevant, don't worry. It'll, it'll, come, come, it'll come back. Um, well, apart so, from it being one of your favourite songs of all time, it's relevant to that too, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and, and also she was on WrestleMania 1 in, uh, with uh, with Muhammad Ali, so, you know, uh, she's a bit involved in old martial arts. Anyway, so if you Googled who invented MMA, the first thing that comes up is Bruce Lee. It says he popularised the concept of MMA through Jeet Kune Do. However, it doesn't say he invented it. Now, mixed martial arts can be traced back to the Han Dynasty in China, which started in 202 BC, which was called S-H-U-A-I-G-I... No, sorry, J-I-A-O. I can't pronounce it, but yeah, look, look it up if you want to get the pronunciation. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to attempt it. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was called... Yeah, it was. It was uh, called uh, this. This business, we'll call it that, and paired, and it paired wrestling and kung fu, and it was used by the Chinese military. Uh, then, in ancient Greece, uh, pancreation, uh, which was first introduced to the ninth, uh, introduced to the thirty-third Olympiad in sixteen forty-eight BC, combined wrestling with boxing. In the 19th century, French savat practitioners would challenge other fighters who did other martial arts. A tournament was held in 1852 between French savat fighters and English bare-knuckle boxers. So more more fusion of the martial arts there. 
Bartuschtitschtu was the first martial art to combine European combat styles and Asian martial arts, which was founded by William Barton Wright in 1899 in London. So that's the most popular one. So, so what I'm basically saying is MMA was invented in London. Um, uh, just like everything popular ever in the UK is, is all based from London, isn't it? Yeah, of course, of course. And we're just a small mining town next door. Next door to Newcastle, yeah, yeah. Was, was that it? I think that's what he said, wasn't it? Next door to Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's just London, and then we've just got all these little tiny little in- inhibitants around, isn't it? That, that's how this country works. Well, it's like London is like the Premier League, and everywhere else is like sort of the Championship. Uh, I, I think of it more as that way. But, uh, but you know. Disrespectful. <laughs> Um, good Liverpool fan. So, <laughs> in in 1963, judo practitioner and wrestler Jean Labelle competed in a no holds barred match with professional boxer Milo Savage, which was the first MMA fight televised in the USA. So that's probably where he's claimed to MMA comes from. Yep. Uh, later that year, free Kaiju Kushin karate practitioners from japan traveled to thailand and fought at the prestigious lumpini boxing stadium against three muay thai fighters now after this bruce lee after all of these events happened um as we say sometime in the mid 60s bruce lee formed jeet kune do which combined different martial arts and bruce lee would go on to become arguably the most famous martial artist of all time to the to this date he would demonstrate his martial arts philosophy on the printed page and in film. So the first time a lot of people would have probably seen or read about mixed martial yeah. arts would be from him. So yeah. although you, 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 well, I mean, so although like he didn't invent it, he, he exposed did, it. He, he, expo- was the, he was the mainstream exposure for it, essentially. He, yeah, he was a mainstream exposure for it. So he, he didn't invent it. But he did popularise it and inspired fighters like Uriah Faber, Randy Couture, Roy Nelson and John Jones, among others who, who you know, will go on to inspire other fighters as well. Conor McGregor, one of them. So I would say because of his fame, you could argue that Bruce Lee, even though he might not have invented MMA, that's a debatable claim. I would say he definitely has done the most for MMA. He's definitely yeah. popularised it the most. I think as well, it's a, like historically it dates back with, and it was many different variants like he went through. But mm. what happened is when Bruce Lee came about and everything that transpired with him, and then like once he died, it was like they realized, okay, we need one defining name for this. Like we need to just all put it into the one sport and then define it as that one thing. So because of Bruce, if Bruce didn't happen and he didn't come along, then he probably wouldn't have been defined as the one thing. It'd still be all over the place, and he still wouldn't have it as this as this one thing as what it would come to be MMA. So I think he's important because of that as well. So he exposed it, but then he also brought it together as well as the one. Yeah, definitely. And it's like uh, a lot of people, including myself, their introduction into martial arts films or to on-screen fighting in general, really, was Bruce Lee. Uh, and so... Like, compare, like, Bruce Lee to something like The Karate Kid, which might be a lot of other people's uh, introduction to martial art films, you could say. If you watched Bruce Lee, 
if if you watched a Karate Kid and you were inspired by that at an early age, you might go on to just like study in a strict form of karate. But if you watch Bruce Lee, you would you get an introduction to all kinds of stuff. Like again, he does some like does some leg takedowns, he does boxing, he does obviously kung fu, he does does some judo throws in his fights on screen. So so just just seeing him from that formative experience, I think it implants mm. the 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 desire i think to want to practice mma yeah can you also as well like say with anything the, the godfather of mma can you punt that on one person like is there a godfather of film is there a godfather of music is there a godfather of wrestling you know it's the same thing it's like you can't really put that on the one person because there's there's so many important historical figures in it but he would be one of the most mainstream so he's likely you know like a whole Hogan in terms of exposure and the mainstream, how we appeal to the mainstream. But it's to say, like, there's a godfather at the same thing. It's a hard thing to sort of pigeonhole, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I think there's only... I mean, it, yeah, it's a hard one. There's, like, debatable topics. Like, you could say Bob Marley's a godfather of, of reggae, but then you, you're always going to get someone saying, oh, well, I was doing that before him. Like, So, it, it all, you know, it, it's all debatable. I mean, there is godfathers of music, but it's two of them. And it's hard to uh, decide which one. You know, like, is it is it Chaz Hodges? Is it, is it Dave Chaz Peacock? Peacock? Is it Dave Hodges? Is it Ch- Chaz Hodges? Dave. Peacock? Is it Willie really Kalan? Is it Hector Lavoe? Yeah, you, I mean, again, George Mendes. They 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 very much uh, Willie Kalan, Hector Lavoe, and you know Johnny Pacheco. All of them geezers <laughs> at the at the uh, the forefront of salsa. You could argue any one of those was the the godfather of salsa. Uh, but but this is where the song. Just to let you know, if you ever wanted mm. to do a salsa episode, I wouldn't have a clue, so I probably wouldn't join you on that one. It'll come one day. It'll come. <laughs> I think you'll get into it. Um, but anyway, the so that's where the song, uh, the Cindy Lauper song, comes in. Now the song "Girls Just Want to Have Fun." It wasn't originally by Cindy Lauper. It was a song by someone called Robert Hazard. No relation to the footballer. However, if Cindy Lauper didn't cover it uh, the world probably wouldn't have heard it and people wouldn't have been inspired to to write their own songs that were similar and it wouldn't have become an anthem for the women's uh, women's movement so right. it, in the same way that cindy lauper didn't write girls want to have fun but if it wasn't for her I, I, I doubt many people probably would have heard it. it probably wouldn't be as remembered as it is today so same for bruce lee like did he invent mma who's to say really i don't i wouldn't say that he did but he definitely brought it to the world so i could i would say yeah there is a claim on him being the godfather of mma Uh, and the same way like being the godfather it isn't your sperm that's like like you know involved you're not you could have to be family related but you're like the the guardian of it you know you're the guardian of, of the sport, and you could you could say that for Bruce Lee. It's 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 a very hard one, but I can I can understand that claim. Yeah, definitely, and obviously due to his open mindedness and like um, yeah, because of what he did and infusing all of the styles together and putting it on the on the scale that it, they got to, then yeah, he, he could deservedly put him as as that. And uh, just on this song, by the way, I had no idea this was a cover, and it's by a man. That's mm. very interesting. So was this was this a man like a was he a trans woman, or was he just really for women's rights? He was just that, that sound of a geezer. Could be, yeah. I mean, it, he could have, he could, it could have been. Who knows what context he was singing it in? Really, I never knew until that's that's why I say, like the original version, I have never heard in my life. 
Yeah, so just going back to uh, Gene LaBelle as well, I think he might be on the scenes. He might be just as important as Bruce. Not obviously, I didn't ever reach the heights um, to get it out there in the mainstream and on the, the scale that Bruce did. But Gene's very important to, to this story and the story of MMA because if you look, even look at his works and like the books he's produced, he's got a handbook on judo, a personal handbook of self-defense, um, a pro wrestling finishing holds book. He's done a grappling master's book. Um, and then, yeah, how to break into pro wrestling, Gene LaBelle's grappling, the godfather of grappling. So, again, he's similar to Bruce in that he was like a pro wrestler. He was a judo practitioner. Um, jiu-jitsu, grappling, all that sort of thing. So he would be another important uh, piece to the MMA puzzle, I'd say. Yeah, he he definitely deserves his credit in the the evolu- evolution of MMA. Um, and and with a name like Gene uh, as as a male, he probably did learn have to learn how to fight. He probably you know I can see why he would have invented mixed martial arts. Yeah, just, just like Bruce and the earring, eh? Similar. Exactly. Exactly. So listen to people out there, don't bully people because you never know one of those people that you bullied could be Bruce Lee or Gene LaBelle. You don't you don't know. They could be the next 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 Bruce Lee or Gene LaBelle. So uh, stop your bullying people. So yeah. so the main takeaway from that whole uh, MMA section was that MMA was invented in London. So uh, so there we go. I disagree. It was invented in Liverpool. Let's be honest, who's got harder people, London or Liverpool? We know the answer. Well, but, but Bruce Lee was from London, because uh, his old ma was from London, as we established before. So, uh, so London, I'd say. I'd say London. No, Bruce Lee was from Liverpool. He went to school here. Yeah. He went to my school, remember? No, London. SFX for life. So, one of Bruce Lee's key influences was the renegade Indian mystic Jiddu Kirishimuruti. I'm, I'm not going to get any of these names pronounced well. And it's just not only from Chinese names, but Indian names. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Anything in the eastern part of the world, basically. In the eastern part of the world, or, or favourite. I, 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 can't, I can't do it. Um, but, but yeah, he, one of his main influences was the renegade Indian mystic uh, Jiddu Kirishimuruti. Kish Krishnamurti. <laughs> he said, "I maintain that truth is part is a pathless land, and you cannot approach it by any religion. A belief I is, with that. Mm, a belief is purely an individual matter. Any uh, and you cannot and must not organize it. If you do, it becomes dead, crystallized." It becomes a creed, a sect, a religion to be imposed on others. And uh, Bruce Lee would, of course, incorporate this into his answer that he gave on the Pierre Burton show in 1971. And and really his philosophy on Jeet Kune Do in general, as I probably said in the last episode, he, he wanted it to be a fluid, ever-changing philosophy rather than a set-in-stone martial arts style. Uh, so, so yeah, this uh, round about this time, he's further developing his philosophy on on martial arts. Yeah, sure, and it goes back to the his main, like he said, mentioned his main quote about being like water, and that that's what that's the whole thing he'd be developing over, you know, from the mid sixties um, to the early seventies when the Jeet Kundo was really developing and you know in its early stages. Mm, definitely, definitely. Um, so apparently Bruce Lee was on the cutting edge of fitness of the fitness revolution. Uh, after his fight with one Jack Man, 
he worked on improving his endurance. Apparently, he was the first martial artist to train like a modern athlete. Uh, Bruce used to run five, four or five miles every morning, and since he was a teenager, he lifted weights. James Lee and Alan Joe, who were pioneers of bodybuilding, showed him basic exercises and general lifts. Uh, Bruce was interested in, in strength rather than size, and he wanted to be ripped, uh, not bulky. And, and Bruce trained all the time, even when he wasn't training, he, he was training. He incorporated training into his everyday activities. However, all this exercise put a strain on his fragile frame, and his knees made a clicking noise when he whipped his foot out. Bruce yeah. also used to, to sweat a lot and uh, used to use an electrical muscle stimulator to help his body recover. Uh, I don't know if that's good. Is that a good thing to do? Uh, yeah, I would say so. It's all about recovery, man. Um, so yeah. just so what, one of my most interesting things about this, doing this and the research for it, was the workout routine, because obviously you've mentioned you know, I'm doing a personal training course at the moment, so that really interested, intrigued me. And I, uh, so again, I've been given a few of the Bruce Lee workouts to go. And I don't know if there'll be exact ones, but say for one day, he would do an upper body workout. So it would involve like a stretching on the warm up and a 10 minutes of a uh, so skip rope. So I bought a skip rope, tried that. Could only do about five minutes because 10 minutes straight with a skip rope is knackering. But what he would train for is that you said it'd be strength, but it'd also be muscular endurance. So with muscular endurance, it's about reps. So usually about 15 to 20 reps of an exercise. And probably for Bruce, it'd be even more, especially on his abs, because if you've seen, he's absolutely ripped. Because he used to do just crazy amounts of reps on, on his abs, 50, 60, on loads of different things, like dragon flags and all these really advanced um, planks and stuff like that. So he was all about the endurance and all about really... Um, that. So that's how he was, became so ripped, because he was basically essentially... Do muscle muscle endurance, and he was burning off so much so much fat as well with the um with his diet, and his his, his diet was just that clean as well. Yeah, well, good good luck to to the geezer again. I, I couldn't be asked of all of that. Give me a Pepsi any day. But, uh, <laughs> but good luck to the get, geezer. Get that diabetes. That's what you prefer. Get that diabetes. Well, to be fair, apart from the one Coke I had with uh, with the McDonald's the other day, um, I haven't had Pepsi in about about a week and a half now. I think is. And I haven't had an energy drink for like seven months. So, you know, getting better. <laughs> yeah, you're doing well. That's an improvement. I mean, how are you going on the old alcohol front? Are you still are you still sober, aren't you? Yep, still still sober. Yeah, still still sober. Um not got any that. emails into my inbox. What's what it's not it's in another product or is it the mm. same? Product placement time. Oh, for fuck's sake. So, uh, yeah, we've got um, whiskey, rum, we've got um, a red wine, and we've also been introduced to the pork game as well now. So, uh, yeah, we expect a, um, a Geese Nation port coming to a Bargain Booze, an Aldi, a Lidl, and Asda. All, all the big chains, all the massive chains that are paying loads of money into my pockets. Yeah, so if you're a fan of port, you like that, like that warm and sort of at the back of your throat drink, you know, after a after a nice little meal, as like a you know a nice treat to yourself, then get it because it's coming soon, Lou. Uh, I mean, you know, again, I wasn't wasn't told about this, wasn't informed, but you know, what can you do? Got yeah. money coming out of my ass. I'm too busy to uh, to inform you. 
Oh, to be fair, though, that, that's a good point. I might have not received the email because we recently uh, haven't been able to pay the electricity bill. So that might have been the reason for the Wi-Fi. Also, I haven't been able to pay the Wi-Fi bill as well. So that might be maybe I just haven't been receiving the emails. Jesus. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, fair maybe enough. You, go, uh, you should go sign on, bro. Maybe you got a few, few benefits or something. Sign on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Re- recently, I've, um, we've not been able to, to afford to keep the lights on. So it's a very dark time. Also, you mentioned about his, uh, his knees clicking, and yeah, yeah, like that with the sheer amount of force that he's putting onto his joints. Like he did a lot of like squats, and he did, you know, he he was he trained a lot of his legs because that's where the bulk of his, his strength when he's fighting is coming from. Obviously, with kicks and with the punches as well, you want the strength, you want really strong legs because that's where the force is coming from. But uh, the with the weights and the exercise he was doing, it would be putting a lot of pressure onto his joints. So over time, uh, someone called like synovial fluid, and there'll be a breakdown of that in your knee and your like patella joints. So you will eventually hear like a clicking. So there is uh, you know long term effects of like say heavy squatting and that sort of thing. But the 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 positives far outweigh the negatives. Oh, interesting. See, so you learn learn something on the podcast, people. I did not know that. And if you want to link as well to um, the Bruce Lee like workout program, it does do day one, day two, um, so outworks. He does an upper body and then he does a full body and endurance on day two. Day three is a bit of MMA and mat work and kicking and punching. And then day four is lower body. Um, and then day five is full body and endurance. So there's a website. You go to superherojacked.com forward slash Bruce Lee workouts and it'll have it there for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I maybe paid some royalties from this website to add to my uh, collection. Again, you know, not uh, I'm not I'm not going to be cutting on that deal, am I? Because I don't do the exercise business, do I? No, no, yeah. no. All right, okay, fair, fair enough. Yeah. So Bruce Lee used to turn up the muscle stimulator very high, and he continued to use this machine for the rest of his life. Uh, Bruce also used to subscribe to all the fitness magazines of the day and buy the faddish fitness supplements. Several times a day, he took a protein shake. We might have previously mentioned this, but it was made up of Rio Blair powder, protein powder, ice water, powdered milk, eggs, eggshells, bananas, vegetable oil, peanut butter and chocolate ice cream. Apparently, he also used to blend up raw hamburger beef and drink it, which I think we talked about before. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I, I know nothing about nutrition. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't hear the word pasta or uh, or, or, or margarita omelet. pizza or omelette. So I didn't I didn't see those words. So I sort of just zoned out and wrote it down without really reading it. Uh, I mean, that good, there would good be nutri- only a few people on the planet that could digest all of that into one sit. And let me tell you, there might be some nutrients and all that, but not many people could be able to digest that. You would have a sore stomach. So no, I don't do not recommend a Bruce Lee protein shake. Just go out and get your, your normal standard whey protein. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Health advice, you fitness the... advice. So an- another reason for working out so hard was aesthetically, Bruce wanted to look better on screen. Um, so it's a body shaming again, not just a female problem. Apparently, there's no evidence to suggest that Bruce Lee ever regularly used steroids. However, there was speculation due to his dramatic change in appearance from the Green Hornet to the Way of the Dragon. 
Um, but, but yeah, there's no evidence to suggest that you use steroids. So I'm going to take it at that, really. There's no evidence there isn't, but pure professional, like pure athletes like that, man, like all the, no one will ever admit and come out and say that they're doping, that they're using steroids. And for someone like me, um, I can, I can tell like man enough if someone is on steroids or not, it's, it's, it's very easy to, and especially if there is a dramatic change like that. So if well, there's no evidence if that's the case, man, like the way he looked and the transformation he made, you know, I'd, I'd find it hard not to believe to be fair. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of it is yeah mental transformation. It, the thing is, yeah, like it's um, there's no problem with it. Um, you know, he wasn't perfect. Like he was an actor. Like how many actors like The Rock? He's on steroids, obviously. You see in that pain allegedly, sir. You see in that film Pain and Game, or like the amount of like m- muscle mass like Mark Wahlberg put on for that. Like you just the, the amount of eating and sleeping and recovery. Like to do that um, in that space of time, like it's just it's near enough impossible. Like, but the thing is, they're actors. They they have to be like you said, aesthetically pleasing. It's like the same with wrestlers. So, like, I have no problem with them being on steroids. It's just whether you are fighting and or you're in a legitimate sport, then it gives you the upper hand. So then it pra- then it technically is cheating. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing with wrestling as well. It's another one where, in terms of um, just like you said, it's not a competitive sport. So I I don't see like yeah professional I don't see a problem with professional wrestlers no. taking steroids like morally, but health wise I, I definitely think it should be discouraged and sure. uh, and and just yeah just to reiterate people out there don't don't do the old steroids um, <laughs> yeah PSA on steroids yeah PSA on PEDs um I mean I, I don't know if some steroids I know like you you take steroids to treat you because like my cat takes steroids like to treat <laughs> treat her like condition so i don't know some steroids are good but, but we're not medical uh don't this isn't medical advice just a disclaimer here so we don't get sued but uh, but i wouldn't advise taking old steroids jack and uh, bob with testosterone is going to be a machine yeah yeah she yeah sort maggie out you know uh, yeah <laughs> it, at the end of the day like you said it's um it's a fine line isn't it morally like for things it doesn't matter but then for health reasons you wouldn't recommend it because at the end of the day, there is side effects. Like people like to shrug them off that there isn't, and they're not as severe as some people make out. But there's they will happen. Like you see a lot of people in the gym with load no hair on the head and loads of hair on the beards. Well, and the massive that usually they are like juice to the gills. So, but we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We don't don't advocate taking the old steroids out there unless they want to sponsor. No, even if they did sponsor us, I don't think we. We, I, I, I don't know. Give, give us the offer, but uh, the yeah, creators but... of Winstrel want to sponsor us. Then be my guest. I'm all for it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take a meeting. We'll take a meeting as long as it's legal. We'll take a meeting. That's that's the motto. Yeah, as long as it's above the law, we'll 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 we'll, we'll, we'll hear you out. Anyway, but 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 yeah. So no evidence to suggest that he he actually uh, no evidence to confirm. I should say that he ever took steroids. Uh, so we go to so we're in 1967, and while all of this is happening in 1967 in Hong Kong, we have the Hong Kong riots. Now in Hong Kong, due to the increase in population, due to people emigrating to Hong Kong after the Chinese Civil War and mainland China's great great leap forwards, you know, with, uh, with communism and, and what have you, they were struggling to keep up with the demands of a growing population, and in, in Hong Kong, they used to ration out the usage of water. Uh, 
employers took advantage of people being uneducated and the growing numbers of people needing jobs, working them long hours in sweatshop conditions. Buoyed by cultural the Cultural Revolution in mainland China and the Portuguese capitulating to the PRC's People's Republic of China's demands in Macau, communists in Hong Kong began to organise uh, the sites, um, organise the workers' sites and co-opt the labour disputes into political demonstrations. 55% of the population of Hong Kong was under the age of 25 and, and young people naturally are, are angry. And in, in May 1967, there were demonstrations and rioting over labour disputes in shipping, taxi, textile cement companies, and in particular, the Hong Kong Artificial Flower Works. There were 174 pro-communist trade unionists. In, in June and July, the demonstrations turned violent as the communists started throwing Molotov cocktails and attacking people um, of attacking people of all times. I don't know if I wrote that wrong, but anyway, they started attacking people. And and China supported the communists, mm-hmm. st- stopping food shipments to Hong Kong and ignoring the co- uh, the colony's appeals for water during a drought. So on the 8th of May, several hundred demonstrators from the PRC, including members of the People's Militia, crossed the frontier to the Shao Tuao Kong uh, and, and attacked the Hong Kong police, of whom five were shot dead and 11 were injured in the brief exchange of fire. Uh, the public turned against them and the police um, I think they took special powers, making a hundred or sorry, one thousand five hundred arrests in just two weeks in July. Um, and left-wing newspapers and schools were shut down, and their leaders were sent back to the PRC. In August, they sent a popular they set a popular radio host on fire, and Jeez. they also yeah, it's serious stuff. And they also did eight thousand and seventy-four fake bomb threats. It, uh, I think yeah, I think they were freight bomb threats. Uh, but anyway, fifty-one people were killed during the nineteen sixty-seven riots. While all this unrest was happening, there was a rise in Chinese nationalism, and films started to reflect this mood. Maybe the most popular was the One-Armed Swordsman, which came out on the twenty-sixth of July, nineteen sixty-seven, and was the first Hong Kong film to make one $1 million in Hong Kong. This film starred an actor called Jimmy Wang Yu, who played the lead role in the film. And uh, it, was, it was about one-armed swords, uh, a swordsman who got his arm chopped off, um, defending his master and, and the school. The Shaw Brothers still, wasn't it, yeah? Uh, yeah, this was the Shaw Brothers. Again, that, they still had the monopoly on uh, all the Chinese uh, film industry. And um, and yeah, so this film very successful, uh, first one to make a billion dollars in Hong Kong. And yeah, about this guy Jimmy Wang Yu who was defending his uh, his master and his school from an invading force, and he got his arm chopped off. It's pretty decent. And and but, but yeah, basically, what, what rate would you give it? Um, oh, I'd, it's been a while since I've seen it. I'd say about, about hmm. For the time, about an eight. I'd say no, 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 an eight actually. Yeah, I, I very, I liked it. I very, I did like it. 
Uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty decent. So you're saying, and, obviously, what, what you get the points you're making is um, with mm. everything, all that shit that was happening um, over there in America at the time, then they that's why all the artistry where it would come about and, you know, would make and it would be massive. It was like a sort of like a revolution in the film industry because of the revolution that was going on back home. Yeah, well, yeah, basically... All of this happening with the Hong Kong riots and the rise in ch- Chinese nationalism. I don't know if the two are mutually ex- exclusive or what have you. But all of this led to films like the one on Swordsman coming out. And it caused an anti-authoritarian sentiment in Hong yeah. Kong at the time. And and yeah, it basically it did influence the... So basically it was a setup to saying basically it did influence the culture at the time. And you had like this... Like the council culture, essentially, like the 60s in a way that was that spawned out of all the, you know, what was going on in politics and the wars as well. Wasn't it? it was quite similar to that. Yeah, it sort of turned the... It turned the sentiment against authorities, basically, whether that be governmental authorities or working authorities... So that basically influenced the kind of films and the kind of art that would, was being made in Hong Kong at the time. And uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, who made the one, who starred in the One Armed Swordsman, he would um, he would go on to to be very influential in martial arts films. And um, he, I don't think he gets the due that he deserves. And I, we'll talk about him him later. Uh, but he would go on to to be a bit of a rival with Bruce Lee, you could say. Uh, but but more on that later. But basically, yeah, that's what was going on in Hong Kong at the time. And also, uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, uh, I couldn't find any evidence that he inspired the name uh, Jimmy Wang Gang, uh, the wrestler, or was it always related to him, sadly? So, uh, yeah. You beat me to that reference, then I was about to say that was the first thing that popped in me, to be honest, when you said his name, but it wouldn't surprise me, though. Yeah, same. The first time I heard it, I I, I thought you know I thought it was that was that was it was that geezer, uh, Jimmy Wang Yang, another geezer I've got an action figure of. He's a obscure obscure fucking mid carders or lower lower <laughs> cruiserweights. So anyway, so while this is happening back in America, Bruce Lee uh, was getting a lot of fans from his role in the Green Hornet. And yeah, it got him a lot of fans, uh, specifically in the martial arts community. He had a growing, a glowing profile in Black Belt magazine, the leading martial arts magazine in America. Mito Uriha was the publisher, and he talked to people about how good Bruce was as an instructor. One day in 1968, a college basketball player, who at the time was called Lou Alkindor, and would later go on to change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was looking to continue his Tai Chi training. Mito recommended Bruce. Bruce met up with him and recommended he learn Jeet Kune Do, and he became Bruce's private student. Bruce also gave lessons to karate champion Mike Stone. It wouldn't be seen as like a master-student relationship, they sort of phrased it more as like helping each other work out, like sort of his relationship with Gene LaBelle, like teaching each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I imagine a lot of that relationship as well was done for the celebrity aspect as well. Not saying that they weren't close in that, but like, you know, it was to get, it, it was with a famous basketball player. He's got the in there, isn't he? Like into the, the pop culture, it's his way in to get his name out there, which is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Apparently Bruce said like from the moment he saw him, he said, you know, I'd love to make a film with this guy. 
and you said like you know people in Hong Kong would go go mad to see you know Bruce fight a guy this size, and um and and more on that later have, having one of the most epic oh, wow. fight scenes in a in, in martial arts history martial arts is there, films history. A bit of a difference as well. Like he was doing Tai Chi, and then he go and then you go oh here's Bruce Lee, <laughs> step up isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar seems like a lovely geezer, by the way. He does seem like a nice does, guy. Doesn't he? Yeah, he does. You, yeah. You'd take a moment to the old mar, wouldn't you? Have a little steak dinner. Yeah, yeah, I would do. Yeah, yeah, I, I would. I would about to say if I was, but I think he's uh, he's got the rare thing of being too tall, which is something I didn't know was possible. <laughs> but he's I think he's too tall for for me if I was. Anyway, but Bruce also gave lessons to karate champion Joe Lewis. And helped him to win eleven consecutive grand championships without a loss. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't imagine he helped him win all eleven, but uh, maybe helped him out one or two. Um, but Bruce had a ringside seat at the 1967 uh, Karate Championship, and in one of the semi-final point championship matches, Joe Lewis was taken on another fighter by the name of Chuck Norris. And after the show, Bruce and Chuck met and they became friends instantly. And they talked and went back to Bruce's hotel room where they worked out and exchanged techniques until 7 a.m. Bruce Hell. and Norris. Yeah. Like session on. Heavy. No, I, ma- I imagine it would be like a scene from one of those, um, like, uh, what you call it, from like a, a rom-com where like the people in the hotel room next door just hearing these two people making all these loud noise going on. Yeah. I, bet, I bet I bet they're having a good time. Then it just you cut to their room and they're just they're like they're just practicing kung fu instead of having it away. And that's that's what a noise is. Or you could be like there on business on your own in the hotel room, you know, cuddling up with your Mac your MacBook mm. and then you hear all this noise from the other other room and it's it's um, it's it's Chuck Norris and, and Bruce Lee going at it. Yeah. I mean, who, who's going to tell Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris to, to quieten down? <laughs> Keep the noise down. And then open the door. Nope. Okay. No, do what you want. Yeah. Do what you want. <laughs> be an awkward introduction. It would be. And round your head off. Yeah. It's kind of like the similar way that we met in a way. Like, we, you know, friends on the first night. You know, I imagine one of them. Bruce maybe played Chuck Norris, the Stone Cold Steve Austin theme song on his phone. And oh, was like, oh, you're into wrestling as well. Maybe that's, that's, maybe that's how yeah. they met. Definitely played the gorgeous George's uh, theme song from the fifties. Yeah, but apparently Chuck Norris is a wrestling fan. I think he he has appeared on uh, on Raw and Nitro. So yeah, fair play to what, the geezer. What a geezer! What a geezer! What a geezer! So Bruce and Norris started training together. Like Mike Stone, Norris said that they were workout sessions rather than like you know the the typical master student relationship. So Norris claimed that he convinced Bruce Lee to do high kicks, and before uh, he only kicked below the waist. Apparently, Bruce used to do high kicks back in Hong Kong, but but Norris he might have helped him refine his style. So in return, Bruce Lee taught Norris some kung fu techniques. So Bruce was invited to Ed Parker's 1967 Long Beach Championship with Kato heavily advertised. A record crowd of 10,000 came along. Bruce was also invited by June Ri to perform at the 1967 DC Championships in front of another record crowd of 8,000. So Bruce uh, would, would 
do appearances like these, be doing paid appearances also at fairs, malls, public parks, and wearing the Kato suit often, and his asking price for these appearances quickly rose to $4,000. Living the gimmick, brother. Living the gimmick. He's out there with the merch merch table, (laughs) you know. Bruce Springsteen right now. in the spot fest. Bruce Springsteen, the, the vanilla right. midget Bruce Lee. <laughs> he's he's doing his youth shoot interviews. <laughs> that Jimmy Wang youth, I get to took my time. <laughs> he, he, yeah, um, he's you know Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about him, but yeah, the appearances dried up after the Green Hornet was cancelled. Um, but but yeah, you know, see him getting some work from the Kato gimmick and uh, and you know having him already before the martial arts films come out an impact on on the the martial arts scene at least in america bruce was approached with the offer to open a franchise of kato karate schools for a lot of money however bruce turned it down as he didn't like the idea of mass consumed homogenized karate schools um, as, as well, he, he didn't teach karate. He, he, t- he taught kung fu, and, and now he well, he's, now he's teaching Jeet Kune Do his own style. Um, what do you so think he, that means in simple terms? Like just like com- completely like commercialized, like the way you have like your big box gyms, you know, like uh, I don't know, you know, like the big big gyms, big, like DW Fitness, that kind of thing. Like, is it the same sort of thing? Is that what that means? Yeah, I just imagine like 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 a McDonald's of like karate schools, like the same like strict print like strict curriculum and um and you know the same yeah basically just a franchise i think it was basically bruce like lending his his celebrity and expertise to it but he wouldn't get to express himself or his martial arts Mm. his martial arts philosophy through the schools and he turned down the offer and i think that that speaks high to to his morals and, and yeah. not these morals but his ideals uh because again he had a, had a wife and kid as well at the time so not an easy decision to make no could have made probably was offered a shitload of money as well wasn't he but yeah he stuck true to his art by the sound of it yeah stuck true to his art so um earlier on you stick in... true to your ass don't you it's my ass yeah yeah, well, f- f- things st- uh, st- stick to my ass, I-, I should say. Yeah, you would but, like it too. That's what you like. If I was, but 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 yeah, but yeah, no. I, I mean, it's one of them where to each his own because everyone's circumstance is different. Uh, some people really do need the money, and I don't think there's anything bad in taking the money because you need to do what you need to do to survive. But oh, same... you definitely sell me out. First, <laughs> don't lie, don't deny it. I'm not the one. You who... sold out. You sold out. You're the one who's taken the sponsorships on, on the down low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm upfront about that, you know. I'm not selling you out. I'm in. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 yeah. Again, to each your own, you know, everyone's situation is different. So I'm not going to don't judge, don't you know, advise judging anyone on their situation. But uh, it speaks high to his ideals and that he really did believe this philosophy. It wasn't just something that was used as a gimmick. It wasn't just a, a marketing thing. This is just the way he believed and he, he wouldn't sell it out for money, which is it's good, it's good to know. So Bruce uh, had moved to L.A. in 1966, the year before, and he asked his friend Jay Sebring to ask celebrity clients if they wanted private kung fu lessons 
in exchange for giving Kung Fu lessons to Sebring, uh, private Kung Fu lessons. Uh, Bruce would increase the price for these lessons. Uh, the fee would be $25 an hour, uh, which is $190 in 2017 money. However, before the Green Hornet, people didn't know who he was. After the Green Hornet uh, was cancelled, he ran into Charles Fitzsimmons, the co-producer of the Green Hornet, who told him he could try it again, and now he had a name, he could charge $50 an hour. On the 29th of February 1968, Bruce made new business cards, charging $150 an hour for presumably one session, or $500 for 10 sessions, and asked Jay Sebring to give them to clients, and he, or potential clients, I should say. And he had his first celebrity student, Vic Damone, who was a singer, actor, and television presenter in the mold of singers like, you know, Frank Sinatra and, and Dean Martin. Um, I'm he, that Bruce Lee marketing technique myself, that business strategy I'm going to take after Bruce. Exactly, exactly. It's about who you know. It's exactly that. I mean, it's you, 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 you get in the good books of one person, they pass your name on to another person. And it's, it's worked for me in the past. I've, I've, you know, worked at one place, they've passed my name on to another place. It's, it is playing about who you know is very important. Mm. Yeah. So Bruce Lee gave Victor Moan martial arts lessons, but also taught him how to, how important it was to relax. He taught him how if you relax when you throw anything, it will be like a whip. And he took the relaxation into his singing and apparently yeah, it improved Victor Moan's singing. So Bruce Lee having a bit of an influence on music there, you know, yeah, good on him. Wow, Jesus Christ. he's uh, He's got his finger on the pulse of many things there without even knowing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Jack trades just like you, Lou. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I try, I try to be. I don't know martial arts or how to sing, but apart from that, <laughs> no, you're more like a stand-up comedy and the art of the dump. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, one time, Damone was invited to Las Vegas by Frank Sinatra, and went to dinner at the Sands Chinese Restaurant. As they were walking into the casino, they met with Big John Hopkins, who was Sammy Davis Jr.'s bodyguard. He waved to someone behind Bruce, and Bruce registered this as an attack and knocked the bodyguard, uh, knocked the bodyguard, at, sorry, knocked the cigarette out of the bodyguard's hand. He kicked his le- his leg and locked up both of his arms by his sides and sent him backwards until the bodyguard was sat helpless. After the bodyguard told him he was just waving to someone, they all sat down and had dinner. <laughs> Weird introduction. <laughs> like, you're, um, I don't know if it's your storytelling or what, but like Bruce's actual life is more of a film than his, act- than his films was. Do you know what I mean? Oh mate, there's that. Like, you just wait. There's there. There is an, an incident. There's 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 a story that should should have been made into a film that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in a second. Brilliant. So so Bruce also trained the Oscar-winning screenwriter Sterling Silifant and columnist Joe Hyam. Bruce was invited to a Hollywood party where he was introduced to actor James Colburn, and they talked about martial arts. And Bruce demonstrated his one-inch punch. But added an extra inch because James was so tall. 
Then James Coburn started taking lessons with Bruce and he would take 106 lessons over a three year period. He also started training Steve McQueen and uh, they became really good friends. So it's a Bruce Lee here. He's basically training a third of, Mag- of the Magnificent Seven right now. He's, 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 he's know all this is happening in this really short span of time. It's it like is. Beatlemania, but even even like on a crazier scale. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's it, it is mad. Yeah, it's all happening so so like yeah so quickly for for him. I mean, once it started, it seems to be happening so quickly for him. Um, and yeah, he's, he's basically walked onto the set of, of The Great Escape, basically, of Steve McQueen, James Colburn. Uh, and, and yeah, Steve McQueen, he was a Hollywood role model to Bruce, and he would give Bruce advice. Um, and he, I think Bruce Lee, he got a lot of his, like, mannerisms, and he's he basically learned how to be cool, how to be laid back off Steve McQueen, which would translate to his on-screen persona. Oh, and, that's cool because obviously Steve McQueen he was nicknamed the King of Cool, wasn't he? So, mm. um, and that's where I noticed in like in his later on interviews, Bruce how confident, laid back, and cool he was. But that's quite interesting the fact that he had to learn that and he was naturally like that. Because yeah, I remember I heard and I've read that actually Bruce was quite naturally like awkward and a bit shy at first. So maybe yeah. So I'm going to see yeah he must have been taught these these ways. Yeah, that, well, that's the reason why I bring all this up. Is it might seem that it's got nothing to do with the story, but but it all comes. It's all it's all important as to why someone was quality, why Bruce was quality, because he he took parts from took you know took the part of being like the, the sort of the, the the lessons on being cool from from Steve McQueen. Um, you know, he's dem- he's he's developing his philosophy and he's getting Hollywood connections like all, all at the same time here. So it is all important to the story of why this geezer was, was quality. And, and yeah, he, it was one of them where getting the sort of, a sort of education in being cool and carrying yourself as a Hollywood star, just the kind of aura that you have to have around you to, to be seen as a star. It, it would, when he returned back to Hong Kong, having that sort of education in the Hollywood system, the Hollywood, you know, style of being a star, it, it just added to his celebrity and made him basically become the biggest thing in Hong Kong because that was something that I don't think other film stars really had. They were very, like, robotic, apparently. And Bruce was, was different. He was cool. He was laid back. And another thing that made Bruce cool and laid back that Steve McQueen would introduce to him was weed. Yes, this was when Bruce was introduced to the old marijuana. Oh, I see. Oh, for you, the cannabis sticks, eh? I know you love them so much, much as I do, eh? It's, it's illegal, but but, uh, but, but, but but Bruce, fair play to the geezer, but, but, but not me, it's illegal. But That must but, have been quite risky for him, though. I mean, I know he was a big name, slightly big name at the time. He's getting a bow in Hollywood, but as an Asian man starting to smoke weed he's got some balls on him there an asian man in the 60s as well oh yeah and i think 1968 if i'm not mistaken 68 69 this is when the beatles and all of their drug scandals was happening in the uk that's when um the officer pilchard was was going into um mick jagger and john lennon's homes and making arrests and stuff yeah, just a war on drugs man and this was happening and then mm. good old I Bruce think that was later Bruce. that was ronald reagan but sorry yeah go on right okay but I mean, I imagine like it was sort of the the start of the way you know, and like in the late sixties, early seventies. So, you know, he's got balls on him, and Bruce fair, fair play to him. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and would have watched smoking a joint with Bruce with him and like that would have been cool as fuck, wouldn't it? Right, yeah, imagine, that's, it sounds like, so cool. Imagine that, like. Yeah, imagine the munchies he must have got though. Dragon, he just what whipped up some of his famous protein shakes in the kitchen. Maybe that's how he came up with the idea. He was like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, what should I? Oh, raw hamburger. Oh yeah, yeah, bring it on, yeah." Stoned ideas from Bruce. <laughs> stoned ideas, but it, it's if it's... it tastes that good when you're stoned, maybe you have to be stoned to drink raw hamburger meat. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. But it's when it's when like listening listening to like interviews and he says stuff like this. The ideal is unnatural naturalness or natural unnaturalness. I listen to it and go, yeah, yeah, he was a stoner. He was a stoner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a stoner right there. So yeah, this is around the time he starts to get into the old Mary Jane, the old marijuana. Oh, the cannabis sticks. The old cannabis sticks, and and, and yeah, the, probably another very influential. Uh, influential force in, in Bruce Lee's life. Talking about cool, like weed smoking stories or weed smoking situations, Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen. There's another one where apparently, um, in the, the Frank Sinatra documentary, apparently, like, uh, what's his name, John F. Kennedy would come around to, to Frank Sinatra's house and they'd hang out in the pool and they'd smoke weed. It's like, imagine that. Like, that's just, imagine that. Fucking, I mean, that that is just like the Hollywood version of the 60s right there. Yeah, that's crazy. So did he? Was he smoking weed while he was in office? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because... I wouldn't be surprised if he if he smoked weed while he was in the office. Probably not. I don't know. But maybe that's why he got assassinated. Who knows? Who knows? This is. Thought, I mean, because of weed. I mean, look, the, the Bruce Lee death conspiracy. That that's enough for this podcast. We don't need to delve into other death conspiracies. <laughs> we'll be here for ages. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, a long twenty-four hour marathon sesh. Yeah. So, so yeah, Bruce Lee wasn't much of a drinker, but he would like to smoke weed, and he later switched to hash. So, by Good the old end... Poly one, eh? Respect. Yeah. Choose the evolution. Yeah. The, uh, the old weed probably got to his head a bit too much fuck with his head, so he just thought, I'll have a little poly one instead, you know, it's a bit lighter, it's a bit, you know, I can function throughout the day on this, so, yeah, I, I, I totally get it, Bruce. Yeah, I don't, it's illegal. So by the end of 1968, Bruce was so popular as a martial arts instructor that he printed up new business cards with the price, uh, Price's professional consultation and instruction that were, that was, that were priced at a hundred, sorry, $275 per hour. So his price going up very quick here. And the 10-session course would be priced at $1,000. Instruction overseas, $1,000 per week, plus expenses. And around about this time, Bruce would start teaching directors such as Blake Edwards, uh, Roman Polanski, and TV producer Cy Wantrup, and a casino magnate called Belden Catelman. I wonder what Roman Polanski would do with all that training, eh? Yeah, I was about to say that's uh, that's not one celebrity you would want to associate yourself. No, with. hopefully Bruce didn't know at the time, or if he did, well, he's a, he's a cash cow, isn't he? Yeah, I think no. maybe I think it might have happened even after he died, though. I don't think I, think I can't did, remember yeah. when. Yeah, we'll give uh, Bruce the benefit of the doubt on this one. Yeah, but interesting fact about Bruce and Roman Polanski: while they were, I can't find the exact time of this ski trip. But they took a ski trip, and I think it's on this ski trip where Bruce first saw the 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 ski suit 
that would inspire the yellow ski suit that he wore in Game of Death, which is of course the iconic look that's been been you know used in everything from like Kill Bill to Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's an <laughs> iconic look right there that he uh, yeah he, he he got inspired by Roman Polanski and hanging out with him really. So um, I, yeah. I loved your post on that. But do you think <laughs> oh, they, they actually? Do you think they they were going for that? Like when we dress Frank up in the suit or what? I don't know to be honest. I, I hope not because I hope it was a good like uh, what do you call it um, um, observation by myself. But it might have been. I don't know to be honest with you. Exactly. I mean, you know, you know, you're not one for the observations usually, guys. I usually just look a bit tired, a bit malnourished. Usually a bit, a bit stoned in. Well, look stoned in. You don't actually smoke, but you know, all your teachers used to, think, your tutors used to think at uni you were stoned when you walked in the lecture hall. That was you. So observations are hard to come by. So. Well done on that one. Oh, thank you, Geezer. Thank you. That's so, what we call a backhanded compliment. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. That was that was that was such a good like, backhanded compliment. Like I thought you took lessons from Bruce Lee. That was like <laughs> an excellent backhand. There. <laughs> Towards the end of 1968, Linda was pregnant with Bruce's second child, and Bruce, Linda, and, and Brandon moved into 1,902 square foot, three bedroom, two bath ranch home in a fancy neighborhood in Bel Air. Um, I'm, I'm not going to insert the, the fucking song um, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> Please don't. I've just started watching that, by the way, for the first time. Absolutely great show, but that song, I, I, w- I wish I didn't go out to those nightclubs because it's ruined that <laughs> fucking song. Oh my God, Warehouse, Pop World fucking max every fucking place but it's ruining that song ruin that song what do you do is you just skip the intro then when you're watching it i can't be asked it's bbc i play it doesn't have that netflix option of skipping the uh-huh. intro so i just i just like go to my happy place <laughs> which is why you your, your phone and the porn tabs yeah i was about to say the in private browser i just flip flick over to that for about a good 30 seconds so yeah, um good one out in 30 seconds well, yeah, you know, it depends who, who's, uh, you know, a bit of Lexi Belt, but the old uh, Blake, Blake, uh, Blake Bloss- Blossom. Uh, yeah. So Bruce put so much training equipment in his new place that he had to park his car on the street. Um, and Steve McQueen offered Bruce $10,000 for the down payment on the house, but Bruce rejected it uh, and they got a loan instead. Um, so just sort of showing you how close they were, really. Shannon Emery Lee was born on the 19th of April 1969 and she had Bruce wrapped around her little finger apparently and apparently this like this caused a bit of a change in Bruce's attitude friends friends had noticed and Bruce became more attentive after the birth of his daughter he's got some swimmers are Bruce hasn't he he has yeah yeah he's got that yeah strong sperm there yeah, that, that... <laughs> That that dra- that dragon entered. Oh, believe you Ooh. me. Oof. Came out the other end. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but it, it, it entered, yeah. Imagine how Bruce came from, like, three years previously, living in that little box room of his, to now living in Bel Air, which is one of the most, you know, richest places you could live, especially at the time, and like Santa Monica, isn't it, with the boulevards and all the mountains surrounding and stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean... Again, like two bath ranch home in a fancy neighborhood in Bel Air. I mean, that's that. Yes, nice place. It's yeah. He, he has he has moved up. He has he's you know he's living well, but at the same time, it's a good sort of example of sort of things on the surface looking good, 
but mm. but he has a te- he's just like he's got loaned he's taken on yeah. a loan for like the ten thousand ten thousand dollars. Yeah, the Ric so Flair effect. The Ric Flair effect. It's the the what was it called? A house poor? Is that what they call it when like you know you spend all your money on a house and then you know you look rich but you're actually you, you know you're not as rich as you look. Um, and Bruce had a little bit of that where he on the surface it looked like he was doing really well, but for the rest of his life he he was never as well off as probably you would have expected him to be as i say because he did pass away when at height of his success or just before the height of his success so he'd never reap the financial benefits that perhaps his, his family sort of reaped posthumously yeah. from, from his it's name just sad, though. at least they, sad, they, yeah. they got paid in the end for it which is probably what he would have wanted isn't it so yeah, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, he was a family man to a, to a point as well, wasn't he? So. Definitely, yeah. Um, and, and again, like, but 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 he he was yeah moving up in the world. He was he was moving up in lifestyles. So as well as training celebrities, he also did bit part roles in TV shows. Um, he found it hard to get roles in TV shows because there wasn't many roles specifically for Chinese actors. So Bruce had to wait several months to compete for the roles. And Bruce also wouldn't take roles that would be degrading. Uh, He lost a number of roles in Westerns because he refused to wear a Chinese pigtail or or Q when the Manchus ruled China um, uh, because they forced Chinese natives to wear them to mark them as women. So, yeah, Bruce Lee, again, standing by his morals... And doing a lot for Asian culture because he's someone where, yeah, you can't really see many images of him being demeaning or degrading. Uh, he's, you know, the Chinese people. So, so yeah, fair play to Bruce Lee there. Yeah, I think he got the lead in this show called like Kung Fu. And um, they just they weren't impressed the TV execs, you know, with his accents and all that. And um, that. so they ended up just replacing him with this white actor. And this is for his own TV show. It was supposed to be his own TV show. And apparently the people on the set, they couldn't even remember the actor's name. So this is just complete no mark. But again, the, the racism was, was still there, it was still prevalent. No matter how up and coming he was, it was still, when it comes to the executives, the executive heads and that, the, there is that underlying racism still there. Oh, yeah, it's, that that will come up. That We'll, we'll get into that one. Um, but yeah, Bruce uh, played a karate instructor in an episode of Ironside called Tagged for Murder on the 26th of October, 1967. Of course, I an American TV show. Um, he had a few minutes on screen and less than a dozen lines of dialogue. Uh, Jean LaBelle was also in the in the episode in a scene where Jean LaBelle attempts to hip-toss Bruce Lee and Bruce jumps over his shoulder and flip-throws Jean. So yeah, on on screen on screen combat of Bruce and Jean LaBelle there. That's I mean, cool. that's very I cool. See not. Yeah, definitely. I'll post it on a, on the if we can find it, we'll post it on the, the social media. Um, yeah, we thought uh, Anoki Ali was the first, you know, mix of combat sports against each other, but actually, it happened here beforehand. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I imagine that Bruce and Jean LaBelle, they're, they're backstage sparring. Oof. Imagine them as a tag team. Oof, oof, oof. oof. Would they be oh. tag team champs in pain? Oh yeah, Bruce and Jean, oh taking over. Yeah. So, so LaBelle apparently choreographed the the sequence, and he was impressed with Bruce's athletic abilities. Bruce's next role was in Blondie, 
uh, in an episode of Blondie um, called called Pick on Someone Your Own Size. And again, Bruce plays a karate instructor. Um, his next role was an episode of Here Comes the Brides called Marriage Chinese Style. Bruce was also a karate advisor on the film The Wrecking Crew in 1968. Um, he was paid $11,000 to teach karate to the cast and serve as the film's fight choreographer. And so this is basically the scenes in that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where you see him teaching uh, Sharon Tate and what have you, you know, karate. Uh, the film starred uh, Sharon Tate, Elk Summer, Nancy Kwan. Uh, Sharon and Nancy were very good students, Bruce said, and they were doing sidekicks with a minimum of teaching, according to Bruce. There was someone else who starred in that film, and he goes by the name of Dean Martin. And and Dean Martin, as soon as I saw his name coming up, you get the images in your head of Dean Martin, you know, the, the, the partier, the heavy drinker, and I was like, oh, I wonder what, you know, uh, maybe, you know, I, I, and I was hoping, oh, come on, let there be a good Dean Martin story. And <laughs> does he does not let me down here. Nice. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, Bruce tried to teach Dean Martin, but he was too lazy, too clumsy, and apparently too drunk to, <laughs> <laughs> to teach. He's Apparently, Dean Martin's personal assistant carried a shoulder-strapped portable bar with him to lubricate him up during filming. And 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 I'm just thinking, what Tarantino? Why don't you, why don't you put this in the film? This is yeah. fucking hilarious. That sounds like me trying to take you to the gym, actually. That yeah. does not sound very similar. That sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? That. Well, the thing is, I, I would have been hungover rather than still drinking. Well, <laughs> are you sure? Well, <laughs> back in your that's, that, that's my that's my that's my story anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's so Dean, like, um, he was that bad then, yeah. He was that bad of a drinker. Yeah, well, apparently, according to the book, uh, um, uh, A Life by by Matthew Polly, um, uh, Bruce Lee, A Life by Matthew Polly, apparently, yeah, he was too drunk to teach um, Kung Fu to. So that was, that's that's brilliant. Well, at least he tried anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then... I'll, I'll try, I'll give you one of a qualified PT. I'll do the same with you. I'll give you a few sessions and here and there. I'll teach you some things, but... You just gotta promise me to not turn up pissed. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm straight sober now, aren't I? So, yeah. Bruce, uh, yeah. Bruce tried to to teach Dean, and I imagine Dean Martin would have said to him, "Bruce, tell me quick. Ain't that a kick in the head?" And, and Dean Martin, of course, he was he was in a great film uh, called Rio Bravo, which I really recommend seeing. Which, of course, also starred uh, John Wayne. Um, uh, does anyone want a film analysis of, of that? No. No. Um, no, no notes on no, no, no painstaking take notes on no. All right, okay, I'll no, use. No. Throw that away. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Good riddance. <clears throat> so Dean Martin needed you know, a stunt. Just fire, actually. Yeah. We've done very well considering you had a whole other podcast plan. We've done f- four parts now of two hours plus, and it's all off the top of your head. You should be proud of yourself. How the fuck have you done that? Well, five years helps, you know, five years. Bruce also got Ed Parker to play a guard and Joe Lewis to play a thug who attacks Dean Martin's character and Chuck Norris to deliver one line of dialogue in the film and a high kick. So, yeah, who, who you know, make them connections out there. 
Around about this time, Bruce got his first role in a Hollywood film, which was Marlowe, which Sterling Siliphant, one of his students, was adapting from a Raymond Chandler novel, The Little Sister. Uh, Bruce Lee played Winslow Wong, a mob henchman. He appeared in two scenes in the film, and it was the first time Bruce played a villain, and probably the last time, I imagine. Um, and he got to showcase his martial arts skills, and he got some really good lines of dialogue. While making the film, Bruce had an affair with Sharon Farrell, who was also married. And they continued the affair while filming Marlowe. However, they stopped after the movie. So Bruce travelled to Mississippi, I believe this was after the movie, to be Steve McQueen's personal kung fu trainer while he while while Steve was filming the Revivers or the Reveres, the Rev Reviers, whatever it was. And um, and Sharon Farrell was also in the film. And they uh, Bruce and Sharon they had intercourse again in in a Google the by the way, I've got her up here. I've not actually. Let's have a look. Is yeah, she, you want to get she, your opinion? Is she okay? Let's have a look, Sharon. Yeah, Farrell. she. I can see why he uh, he went there. Like, it's that typical like sixties blonde um, actress look, though, and it like they all look fucking similar. All oh, trying to look like Marilyn Monroe, didn't they? Yeah, she's all right. I'd say she she's the one punching in that situation. Now I reckon Bruce, but she she's all right. She's attractive. But, uh, I'd say I'd say she's doing well in that situation. Bruce is the one for you then. If I was, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so apparently they had intercourse again in her dressing room. <laughs> How and, do you know that that's specific? Well, Someone I mean, must have walked in on them, definitely. Well, I think Sharon must have like wrote about it in her, um, yeah, maybe in an autobiography or talked about it in an interview because it was it was in a book anyway, a Bruce Lee Life by by Matthew Polly. But yeah, Sharon. She was also having an affair with Steve McQueen. So, um, so yeah. Gets about a bit, eh? Jesus. And she's married. Christ. And she's married. She's actually, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, it's not never good to, to treat, you know, and, and adultery and all of that. But she's done well for herself there, having the choice of Steve McQueen or Bruce Lee. I mean, that is, yeah. that is a good list of, of, of people there. But you know what? That is stress. Like, how could you handle that many people when you play to the at the one time? Like, one relationship's enough for me because you know it is a lot to handle. Like, but to have one and then have all these other things on the side is like stress. Like if if, if 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 those if two of those relationships with Steve McQueen and Bruce Lee, I mean, you find the time. You find the time. Yeah, you'd be yeah. up for it then. Well, yeah, there'd be an opening. Needless to say, I'd find an opening. There'd be many openings with you. If I was, if I was. Um, but yeah, so Sharon couldn't see Bruce anymore. And they uh, they seemed to part on good, good terms. But then Bruce avoided her for the rest of the week. And after that, uh, they never saw each other again. But Bruce, you know, getting about, getting about. Marlowe apparently didn't do very well commercially or critically. However, Roger Ebert did, um, did praise Bruce Lee's performance. Of course, Roger Reba, legendary uh, film critic. Yeah, and it's gone yeah. for so long, isn't it? Yeah, was it Siskel and Ebert? They they were the two like bigger uh, film critics. I think they've had their own show or something. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah. He he didn't mention uh, Bruce's name or get his ethnicity right. Um. But but gave him a good a good review on in the film. So you know 
Bruce, you know, doing, doing well there. So Bruce tried to get a martial arts movie made with uh, Steve McQueen starring and Sterling Silliphant writing, uh, and Bruce would be the co the co star. Mm. And the film was about a character called Cord, the seeker, played by Steve McQueen, who must defeat several enemies: a, a, a blind man, the rhythm, the rhythm man, the monkey man, and the panther man, who represented greed, fear, anger, and death. Who would all be played by Bruce? Clever. At, what's that? Sorry. Clever. Clever. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting idea, and, and and definitely, yeah, Bruce Bruce must have smoked that weed. I mean, that is <laughs> that is a stoned idea right there. That that is basically that's basically like 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 Del Boy and Rodney <laughs> getting drunk, right in that film. That film, right, right, right in that film out. Yeah, never forget the uh, the plane, eh? <laughs> the runway or, or lack thereof. It's basically, <laughs> it's basically like that going on with Steve McQueen, Bruce Lee. Could <laughs> you imagine all them just like in a room together, you know, absolutely stoned in, coming up with all this ridiculousness and like, oh, there's the idea. This is an idea. Uh, it's not too far away from reality. So, so Steve, Steve McQueen declined and said um, he's not interested in in Bruce riding his coattails because they, they AKA are... didn't want to smoke anymore with Bruce. <laughs> yeah, Bruce smoked Chongan on too much. Smoked him out allegedly, allegedly. Um, but no, I, I, like, yeah, no, I think it, it was one of them where their relationship they were friends, but they were also rivals at the same time. Where they they were, you know, they were all good. They were friends, and you know, they you know do favors for each other, I suppose, you know. But but you know, they had this thing with Sharon Farrell, which I don't know if Steve knew about. But yeah, they had this friendly rivalry going on between the two. Which we see for for the rest of Bruce Lee's Bruce Lee's life. Mm, it's a friendly competition, but it's like it's a it's a bit 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 more than friendly, isn't it? Like it's it's a bit a bit extreme. Like I wonder if they knew about the affairs. Like imagine if they were just having a game of one up with each other. Like uh, what what position did you get it in? Oh, but I got it in dog. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you only done mission, you know that kind of thing. She, Wait, she, she only came three times with you. <laughs> maybe that's what they cover in the in the in the private lessons, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so um so yeah when when steve left he uh bruce said that he would be a bigger star than steve mcqueen one day so bruce started reading self-help books and in one of them napoleon hills think and grow richer uh, oh, sorry think and grow rich he advised his readers to write down a goal and recite it over and over again morning and night um, which I think is something that you you've had a similar was what did you read this book or was it something similar so I imagine you had three three goals or something that you had had to yeah. write down so I, I never knew that Bruce that's cool so yeah it's just essentially um like you have like the law of attraction and the law of detachment I mean it comes uh, the most famous book of that is the secret now the secret's nice to read but I wouldn't take it as stone cold fact because like some of it's flawed in the sense that the, most of the book is from the, the viewpoint of wealthy people. So it's all these wealthy people telling you what they did to become wealthy. And it's like, okay, but you need the viewpoint of someone who's a bit more normal as well. But it's just sense of um, what he's clear. It's the same sort of thing. So with the law of attraction, what you do, what I, what, what is recommended to do is um, if you write down five of your goals, 
and if you write down the things that you're grateful for as well, and that's something that I do like, you know, once every couple of months or so. And it's it's not like, oh, I'm going to write this down, it's going to come true. It's, it's nothing like that. It's it's more just if you write your goals down and they're there in front of you, you can keep coming back to yourself there and then and then you get motivated by just looking at it written down in front of you. So it's all motivational tool and what it does is subconsciously, I think it gets embedded in your brain and like that's, that's what I need to do, that's what I want to do. So it's a healthy thing to do to have your goals there in front of you. Now, I don't do it every day, but like I just think I have a go at it. Just write five things down that you want to do. And honestly, like loads of my stuff has come true and is on in process of coming true as well. It's quite it's mad really. I didn't think I didn't go into it thinking, oh, this is this is gonna all come true, all my dreams gonna come true or whatever. But like, yeah, shit loads of my goals have come true and it's because it's written down in front of me and I'm like, okay, there we go, there's motivation, I need to go and do that. That's an interesting point. I'm, let me just type this out. <laughs> Laid. <laughs> yeah. Right, there we go. 50 times and then, and then revisit it every day. You'll be fine. Does Law Retraction mention anything about copying and pasting? Or do I have to actually type it out? Uh, yeah, you think you have to actually try writing it out yourself, maybe. Oh, Does it have to be spelled correctly? <laughs> well, not with you. It's not going to be spelled correctly, is it? That's all right, then. We'll let you off. There. So, yeah, Bruce, he wrote down his uh, his life goal. He entitled it, My Definite Chief Aim. He, he wrote down, I, Bruce Lee, will be the first highest paid Oriental superstar in the United States. In return, I will give the most exciting performances and render the best of quality in the capacity of an actor. Starting 1970, I will achieve world fame, and from then onwards till the end of 1980, I will have in my possession $10 million. I will live the way I please and achieve inner harmony and happiness. Um, I mean, that didn't really happen, but he did He did all right for himself. <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, but some of those things kind of did come true in a, in a sense, didn't they? Like, that that's cool. I really never knew that about Bruce. And um yeah, that that's it's amazing that like what just the foresight to write stuff down and then motivational and like it's it's inspirational to hear that like Bruce did that and then you know he went out and, and did it and like a goal doesn't have to necessarily mean I'm gonna have loads get loads of money. You can be the most minuscule of things, like like you said, get laid. So try it out. I say minuscule. I mean, for you, maybe that's minuscule. <laughs> Bruce also tried to get Paul Newman to be in his film, uh, The Silent Flute, but it didn't work. Uh, I love the ambition of Bruce. Like, it's like, who who can we get? Like, the you know, biggest leading actor, actors in Hollywood, Steve McQueen, you know, Paul Newman. He doesn't start off small. He goes right in for the top. What about Chaz and Dave? Chaz and I'm not, well, I mean, he wasn't stupid. He couldn't have got them. I mean, that's too, he couldn't Ooh. pay their asking price. That's true. It's very high, isn't it? Very high. That's why they've not been in any films. No one can really like you know reach their uh, reach their their price. But but yeah. So he then approached James Coburn uh, to star in the film and offered him the chance to direct, and and James agreed. Uh, Sterling and James uh, Coburn would uh, co-produce. Bruce would do the choreography. Uh, we would do the choreography of the fight scenes. Uh, Sterling said that he couldn't write it as he had too much work on the go. Uh, that that must be nice, a screenwriter with, with too much work. Uh, <laughs> That's your dream, isn't it? 
That is my dream, yeah. And hey, you've uh, got one to your name now. Official BBC credits. Exactly. Official BBC credit. Got credit for BBC and news review. So, you know, and get, mm. you know. Put that on your CV and smoke it. Exactly, exactly. So Sterling didn't have enough time to write it himself, so he asked his nephew Mark to write it. Um, so, but, but Bruce was hesitant about this, but you know he agreed. Um, but Bruce, I think, very quickly wanted to replace Mark. Sterling didn't want to, as you know, they were they were family, and Mark was working on it for free. So they wanted to get a veteran screenwriter, but they demanded money up front. Sterling agreed with Bruce to replace Mark. But when, uh, but when Mark asked, you know, he said, you know, don't don't find me, Geezer. Uh, Sterling said, you know, work on it in secret, and and just write fast. However, you never quite worked out. Um, Sterling you know what said, that's like, don't you? Eh? I do. Yeah, it's more. Uh, I'd be in the position of Mark in this uh, in this scenario. So yeah, <laughs> I'd be Mark. Mark. Hey, jabroni Mark. Jabroni Mark. But Sterling Siliphant's next script was Walk in the Spring Rain, and he wrote a fight scene in it where Bruce could work as a fight choreographer. Um, and, yeah, there were, there were two stuntmen who were on the set who, you know, didn't really, like, work. They, they didn't want to work for a guy who was £135. So Sterling asked Bruce to do a demonstration. Sounds like so Hulk Hogan. It, it did, yeah. They were trying to... They, it, was, it was a bit like Triple H and Kurt Angle. <laughs> So um, um, was Bruce? Did they want Bruce in the film to act uh, or not? No, I think he was just like choreo- uh, fight choreo- or being a fight choreographer. But you know, these two two stuntmen, they were they were you know, they saw this guy one hundred and thirty five pounds, and they were like, you know, well, yeah. you know, he, he's not a tough guy. So Sterling basically asked Bruce to do a demonstration. So Bruce asked one of them to hold a kick shield, and um, Sterling st- uh, stood both of them next to the pool. And Bruce said he was going to give them a little kick. He kicked one of them into the middle of the pool and the other one almost to the other end of the pool. So, you know, he showed, showed them. Yeah, impressive. Impressive. I mean, it depends how big the pool was. You know, if it was quite small, if it was like a paddling True. pool, you know, it might not be that impressive. Well, that's but, yeah. the thing. I mean, if it was yourself, I mean, you need armbands in a, in a paddling pool, don't you? So. Exactly. Yeah. Forget about the kick shield. I'd, I'd need. Yeah. I need a need need armbands to to support myself. Have you ever drowned before? No. No. Still alive. Still alive. Uh, <laughs> no. I've drowned before. Yeah. Have you? Bloody the worst thing ever. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. What, so see, it, are you dead right now? I'm dead right now. Yeah. Drowned. Oh Jesus! I didn't know I was recording with a ghost. I'm the evil one. No. Wow. But, yeah. No. I was seven. Seven there was, and I went. I went to Ibiza with my mum and dad and my brother, and this little girl for no reason. I'm just walking on the side of the pool. I'm not even swimming because at this point I couldn't swim. I was only seven. I was just walking to go get ice cream or something like that. Mm. And this little girl out of nowhere shoves me in this deep end of the pool, and I'm there. I'm like no idea. I'm underwater. My eyes are open. I'm choking. And I thought I was dead. Well, I was. I was dying. And then um, a couple of minutes later, a brother dived in and dove in and, and got me out, luckily. And then I got out and she was just laughing. Jesus, the, Jesus. The audacity. So whoever this girl was, thinks she was Spanish or some shit, maybe Italian. She don't think she was English. Wherever you are, I hope you know you hurt me. You hurt me feelings and now I am the way I am because I drowned that time. 
Yeah, and at the cage match this Sunday. <laughs> well, we've only had Bruce Lee there, so we could have round this little girl's head off. Yeah, was well, it another similarity? You and Bruce, you know, almost you know the near drowning experiences with the old water. <laughs> Somehow, I think they were different experiences. Like, yeah, yeah, but but yeah, Bruce Bruce Lee showing people, you know, showing the stuntmen what's what. I imagine there was probably someone doing insurance for the film, like you know, a bit annoyed. But uh, but anyway, yeah, Bruce Lee having a great time. Um and. Uh, well, I'd say the, the the great times in Hollywood were uh, were about to be radically changed and uh, brought to a swift end on the 8th of August 1969 when three Manson family cult members, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins and Patricia Kenwinkle, murdered Abigail Fulcher, Wojtek Frykowski, Frykowski, Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, who was pregnant with a baby boy at the time, and Jay Sebring. Uh, people in Hollywood were terrified, and Bruce only lived a couple of miles away, so he was understandably terrified. He surely um, was terrified, though. Wouldn't they be terrified of him? Like, imagine if these these cult followers showed up to Bruce Lee's door. I'm sure they'd get the, their head smashed in. I'd love it. I mean, why didn't Tarantino put that in his film? Like, they go to Bruce's one by accident, and Bruce yeah. just like that. That'd be a quality. quality would have made up for that. that scene where he was acting like a doofus. Yeah, later on in the film, he could have, you know, made a better. Them showed up. Massive ass fight scene would have went down. Could have been like Kill Bill style type of fight scene, but no, we didn't get that. Exactly. Exactly. But but yeah, Bruce understandably was very shaken up because he also trained. He trained Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, of course, when they were working on the Wrecking Crew. I just and... want to say, as a PSA, we mm. don't condone the actions of Roman Polanski, and I can, I can say confidently that that man is a nonce, and yeah. we don't need to edit it out. It's great. I don't, I don't think so. No, I think he was. Um, was he? Was I'm not sure if he was convicted or like because I know he fled the country, but so I don't know if he ever went on trial. But I'll say allegedly, just just in case there is any <laughs> lawyers. But it's you know, well, you probably did it, isn't it? You can just fuck off back home to your own country or whatever, and uh, all's well. He's probably living, you know, wherever he's living now, probably having a good life at like eighty-seven or whatever. But it's mad. Yeah, yeah, getting standing ovations not too too long ago in the at award shows. Me too, people. Me too. You know, you 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 hypocrites. Anyway, so. Bruce, yeah, Bruce, understandably shaken up because, you know, he, he trained Roman Polanski, who's, of course, married to Sharon Tate, trained uh, Sharon Tate, as I say, and Jay Sebring, of course, you know, he's he's close friend, um, someone who's very influential in his, his career, and he was really shaken up by it, and Hollywood in general was really, you know, shocked by this. Uh, the police were working without suspects for about three months, Roman Polanski, he found a pair of horn-rimmed glasses not too far from Sharon Tate and J.C. Brings bodies. So when Bruce was training, uh, Roman Polanski 
um, said, uh, so when Bruce was training Roman, uh, Bruce said that he lost his glasses. So they drove to Roman Polanski's opticians. And on the way there, uh, Roman Polanski's heart was, was racing because he was thinking, oh, Bruce, you know, he's he's a dangerous, you know, he well, he could potentially be a dangerous man. He's got skills to do it. You know, he, he might know how to shoot a gun. Um, he might know how to use bladed weapons. You know, he might have the, the, the power to, to kill. Well, we know he does. He used to carry that knife around. Exactly, he's he's carried a switchblade before, um, but apparently when when they turned up um, at the opticians, Bruce had a different prescription to the glasses found near Sharon Tate. So, um, so Roman Polanski was relieved. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that has been conspiracy theory that a rabbit hole I don't want to go down. It's true, yeah. It was, it was, <laughs> it's like, geez, Bruce Lee might be a serial killer, and not 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 the Bruce Lee in whole. The the different, it could be two. Bruce Lee serial killers, but but not to be. Not to be. <laughs> Bruce Lee, the OG Bruce Lee as a serial killer. Now that's the scariest man ever in existence. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But yeah, that must that must have been a, a, a very stressful car ride. But but yeah, no no, we're not we're not saying Bruce Lee was involved in the uh, the Manson family. We're merge. not. Although after this podcast, maybe I will. Uh... Just, just see that. Just Google that. Maybe see the conspiracy theories on that. I'm just intrigued. That's all. You know, I'm not a flat earther. I'm not. Don't worry. But I'm just intrigued. Mm, mm. Um. So a month after the crime, James Coburn and Sterling Silliphant paid a screenwriter twelve thousand dollars, and which was eighty thousand dollars in two thousand seventeen for the script. Um. No one liked the script, so Bruce and Coburn pleaded with Sterling to write the script. However, Sterling said he would only do it if they could all meet three nights a week between five and seven and dictate the scenes and the ideas to his secretaries who would write it down. And so they agreed. Uh, In February 1970, Bruce was invited to June Re to go for an all-paid, all-expenses-paid tour of the Dominican Republic to give martial arts demonstrations. So, you know, Bruce getting travelling about a bit. You know, yeah. Pays to, to be Bruce. Pays to be Bruce, you know, going down to Dominican Republic, probably, you know, dancing some salsa. So it's yeah. all happening for him here. You know, he's having affairs with hot blondes. He's, uh, he's meeting some of the most famous Hollywood actors and becoming friends with them. He's also travelling the world, going to the Dominican Republic, probably slaying some, some poon there as well, I imagine. Exactly, exactly, yeah. You know, getting get a... You know, he's yeah. Apart, apart from his mates dying by the old Manson family, it's all all going well. All going well. <laughs> sure, he can get over that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in mid March, Bruce got a call from a radio station in the early hours of the morning asking for a live on air interview. Uh, it was a Chinese radio station in Hong Kong. Uh, he gave the interview, and they asked him, "Are you going to be returning to Hong Kong soon?" And he said he would travel to Hong Kong. Uh, very soon uh, and on, on March the 27th Bruce did fly to Hong Kong as he wanted to arrange a visa for his mother to live in America however when he arrived in the airport he was swarmed with reporters uh, the Green Hornet had aired in China and it became so popular that it was called the Cato show and Bruce was sort of made out to be the star of the show so to everyone in Hong Kong it looked like Bruce had made it in Hollywood and it's interesting make... that he probably had no idea, like he, because obviously he was second in command when it was going on in America, weren't he? He wasn't. Mm. He didn't become that. He became a little bit popular, but not that popular from it. 
but then there's the over there. Um, yeah, it shows, doesn't it, as well? It proves that, like, you know, now, because it'd be plastered all over social media, it'd be a worldwide star instantly. But he's, he's only a star in, in places that he doesn't know about because there's not communications from, from China and America the way, the way there is now. Uh, I find it so fascinating, like, places, like, people who are, who are seen as, like, you know, they're, they're known but not famous, but then in some other places they're, like, superstars, like the great Carly, apparently. Obviously, here... He, he turned into a bit of a jobber towards the end. Mm. Uh, but in, in India, apparently, like, they edited the show so he would be, like, main event. And like, he yeah. was seemed to be a massive superstar over there. Yeah. He's like, he's like a god there, isn't he? Yeah. Terrible, terrible wrestler, but uh, you can get away with it. Terrible wrestler. Terrible wrestler. World champion, but terrible wrestler. <laughs> that gives you hope, doesn't it, Lou? You could be a world <laughs> champ one day. If you could. Dave, Dave and Arquette, Vince Russo, great Carly. World champions. World champions. <laughs> My goodness. Icons. Icons. So, so yeah, he was went to uh, Hong Kong, swarmed at the airport because it was seen as like quite an unreachable achievement to make it in Hollywood, uh, being, being from Hong Kong. And he was asked to go on uh, Enjoy Yourself Tonight, which was apparently the Hong Kong version of The Tonight Show, sort of the equivalent of that. Um, and... Bruce went on and gave an interview where he came across as cool and charismatic. As I said before, you know, he studied these lessons from uh, Steve McQueen. And audiences, they were used to seeing actors coming across as stiff when they went on air and, you know, just reciting, like, studio lines that that were sort of written for them uh, because apparently they'd be punished if they didn't. But Bruce came here, um, obviously not in the, the Hong Kong system at the time, coming from America, and just came across like as someone who was free. And he, he you know, mm. captured the, the audience, basically, by just coming across so differently. Probably gave so many people hope as well, didn't it? Like, mm. they talk about the American dream and all that. I'm like, well, he's like, he is a bit of a living embodiment of that. And it's and obviously he was there to be seen at that point. Definitely. I can, I can imagine it's a bit like... It's kind of a bit like Dave Chappelle with his most recent special, where like he's so popular now that he, you know, he he basically can say what he wants to say, and now he and he on that recent he could just do like a, a like a seventeen minute special where he trashes yeah. all of the uh, he exposes the Hollywood system, and it's like no one else speaks like I imagine it's that kind of equivalent. It's like no one else like it's like Dave Chappelle now. He seems like he's doing stand-up from a different planet. It's like no one else, you know, exposed yeah. the system in that way. And imagine yeah. Bruce Lee, it, it sort of that had that effect, I imagine. He's just reached that untouchable stage, hasn't he? And it's similar. Like Eminem as well is quite similar because, like, I think going forward, he's just dropping albums out of nowhere as a surprise without any build-up, you know, promotional tactic. And I imagine that goes against what the labels and that wants him to do. But like his last two albums, he just dropped out of nowhere, and that, that's because he's on his is what now, and he beats to his own. Hello, hello. Yeah, just sorry, you just uh, cut out there. Oh shit. Uh, yeah. So I was sorry. I was just comparing. Um, so you mentioned about Dave Chappelle and Bruce Lee. I think Eminem is quite similar in a way because he's at the untouchable stage as well. Because he drops albums out of nowhere, like his last two albums are out of nowhere, just complete surprise. And I imagine that goes against what the labels want him to do, and all the promotions and endorsements involved with it as well. But same sort of vibe. He's probably on his own wavelength. He beats to his own drum, so he can go out and do what he wants, basically. 
Mm, definitely. I mean, I've reached that untouchable stage, but in a very different way, and that's that's not out of choice. Five years. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but you touch yourself, don't you? I touch myself. I beat my own drum many times. Anyway, so uh, but yeah, audiences they weren't used to like seeing someone like Bruce come across as so free and and so cool. And yeah, when he was on the show, Bruce also did a kung fu demonstration, which blew everyone away. And someone was watching, and that person watching the show was Lo Wei, a director who worked for Golden Harvest Studios. He then told his boss, Raymond Chow, to watch the appearance. And it took Raymond Chow a week or two to get a copy of the episode. And he thought Bruce, you know, had some potential and wanted to offer him a tryout. Uh, but Bruce returned to America in April uh, 16th that year so i don't think they had the time in in april uh, raymond chow was able to track down bruce's number and he called him and asked if he would make a movie in hong kong and he said if the price was right they continued talking but bruce wasn't that interested in the offer as he was still committed to making the silent flute uh, in america bruce james coburn and sterling silifant kept meeting through april and may and they all contributed something different to the script um and uh, and i imagine the script you know was, was now called there's a there's a rhino loose in the city <laughs> oh why don't we ever get the release of that you know gutted yeah exactly yeah I just, what's I'm it just... about <laughs> was it a bit <laughs> i could i could just imagine though that would be a similar kind of like a similar kind of setting just these guys all sitting round <laughs> well getting plastered <laughs> getting plastered bruce bruce Talking smoking up yeah <laughs> well it is very close to reality right now because because apparently by this point it, it the idea was an avant-garde metaphysical meditation on the meaning of martial arts in the final draft cord who was the, the main character um uh, was i think looking for the bible of martial arts which contained the secrets of unarmed combat and he must fight three trials that represent ego love and death all, all of these guys played by by bruce lee and he had a guide called i sam a blind man who plays a flute that only the main character Chords can hear, which symbolises Chords' unconsciousness. Uh, and, <laughs> A.K.A. And, Bruce Lee takes DMT. <laughs> well, Bruce, Bruce, yeah, he's just like... The, the, you, you can tell we definitely smoked. These, these are marijuana ideas. <laughs> For sure. And, and, and James Coburn as well. If you've ever seen his films, he looks like... He, he's a man when he acts, he looks like he's high. But anyway, at the end of this journey... Did he like uh, the, uh, the old delicious nose clams, did he? The old delicious... Well, I mean, I don't know about that kind of high. More like just the old, <laughs> the old, you know, bit of the old Mary Jane. Anyway, at the end of this journey, Cord rejects the martial arts Bible, which represents organised religion um, and, and, and I imagine sort of as a metaphor for martial arts, the organised martial arts. And he unifies with our sham and disappears into nirvana um so yeah and the screenplay structure was inspired by joseph campbell's hero with a thousand faces which inspired uh, star wars the the uh, the the original structure for that trilogy interesting and, in, in what sense well it was um if, if i mean i am i'm not the best to explain it but it, there's this documentary on star wars called uh, the empire of dreams 
incredible documentary and it and it talks about um george lucas and how yeah the the uh that that book uh joseph campbell's hero from a thousand faces yeah heavily inspired heavily inspired star wars so um, there's a due to like setting in the world the way he created the world and the universe probably that kind of thing I think more like Luke's journey, really, because it, it talks about yeah. the different the different types of heroes that there are in mythology, and sort of Luke's he- hero about a, a, someone from who goes on a journey. And uh, again, I, I'm not the best one to describe it. If I can find it online, I, I'll insert uh, his his explanation here. But but yeah, I imagine Bruce must have read that book and inspired him with, with this story. Mm, probably stone well, you would rather as well eh? probably probably i mean i mean sort of that that, that whole the, the whole thing about like a, a a guy who goes on a journey to to a foreign land on an expedition on a quest and then returns is very similar to the script that he would write with from the way of the dragon if you think about it so maybe, maybe that inspired yeah. him there later on so yeah that sounds like you going to evoke trying to get laid yeah, but but on my journey, I, I come back unsuccessful and um, not developed as a person. Any if anything, I, I've. You should uh, all come back empty-handed, though. There's uh, cans of Fosters at the ready. That's true. Very true. Very true. But apparently, the script had groovy dialogue. That's what's how it was described in uh, in the book Bruce Lee: A Life by Matthew Polly. And apparently, it was trippy and had extreme violence and sex. One scene includes a decapitated woman who's being crucified with a rose sticking out of her neck. Um, yeah, yeah, I know that there's other scenes with intestines being ripped from a giant, um, giant black man and a young boy's brains leaking from a cracked skull. Bloody hell, I get, I imagine for this time period and like this would have been a complete shock, like if this would have seen the light today, wouldn't it? Oh like, yeah, I mean, it, it, and... oh definitely. I mean, it, it did eventually actually get made this film. I think it went by a different title. Oh. Let me let me type this in. Actually, it came out after Bruce Lee's death, and I think Bruce Lee was credited as a co-writer. Uh, Circle of Iron, it was, oh, okay. and it came out in nineteen seventy-eight, and it starred. Uh, so yeah, it was credited to. Sterling Silliphant, James Coburn, Bruce Lee, uh, Stanley Mann as well is credited as a screenwriter. So I imagine he, maybe he did some work on it. And yeah, had Christopher Lee and oh, yeah. uh, David Carradine in it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's about the differences between Western and Eastern philosophy. Hmm, interesting. I might have to uh, give that a watch. Sounds quite good. Give it a watch. Yeah, yeah. See, see what it's about. But, but yeah, Fish itself though, obviously, with a, actually to be fair, <laughs> critical response here says the uh, the poor the acting was poor, but it's gained a uh, it's gained a cult following. Yeah, you have to give give that a watch, and it it could be on a what that's why they were bollocks episode if it turns out yeah. to be terrible. To but, be but... fair, so Christopher Lee's been in so many weird ass cult like films that uh, are just proper out there, so I imagine it's so dead weird. Yeah, yeah. Wait, what a legend Christopher Lee is! But he, I think he's rest dead, him. I think he's. I wouldn't be surprised if he's still alive. He's he's a ridiculous. Oh, no, he's yeah, ninety three. Lived to good good innings there. Good life, eh? Scouser him. Got that scouse blood. Is he a scout? No, he's London Gazer. He's London. 
according to Wikipedia. No. Bruce Lee is scouts, though. We know this. This is confirmed. No, London. London. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so... So, yeah, I mean, that, that whole idea of them just, like, sitting around getting plastered and coming up with batshit ideas, it's not too far from the truth, really. It, it, it sounds very much like what was happening at, in, in those meetings. But but may, maybe I need to follow their method, you know, get, get yeah, plastered. I've always said you'd suit being a stoner. Mm, mm, I do know mm. creative juices if you were a, a smoker. Oof. Oof. Oh, yeah, be better than some other juices I produce. Anyway, they wanted the film to be filmed in Thailand, Japan, Morocco, and they wanted it to be in six languages. Thai, Cantonese, Arabic, Japanese, Urdu, and English. So, you know, shooting for the stars, you know, they're, they're, they're not, not being modest with this attempt here. So uh, good luck to them. But anyway, aside from working on this film, Bruce Lee also did get time in 1970 to attend a screening of another film, which was The Chinese Boxer, which came out in 1970. Now, this film would star, be written by and directed by the previously mentioned Jimmy Wang Yu. And this film was considered by many as the first non-Wuxia Kung Fu classic and the first Kung Fu film to use mostly hand-to-hand combat rather than weapons. However, they, they did have some sword fighting in the yeah. film. So uh, would ne- would Wuxia films then was they getting a bit outdated at that point? You think is that what? And maybe were they a bit cheesy? Uh, maybe. I mean, they they did make them after after this period as well. But it, yeah, I think like this whole sort of Bruce Lee being the biggest star sort of in martial arts films ever. He he's considered to be the person by a lot of people who who made the transition from Wuxia films to martial art films, where they they would where they would be more realistic, mm. where they wouldn't have people flying all over the place. But Jimmy Wang Yu, I think, as as I said, he's someone who does get overlooked a lot because this film came out before The Big Boss, and it it, it did sort of start that transition, and it was I think the first at least popular film of its kind. To, to not use weapons and just use like well not mostly use weapons and just have yeah. hand-to-hand martial arts fighting and it goes to show as well with a lot of people that we probably cover in these podcasts like these these legends that they're not necessarily the first to do things they're just maybe the best you know so like bruce i don't know if he whether he admitted or not but he wasn't he wasn't the first he probably got a lot of ideas from this jimmy wang you but he mm. was just most successful to to do it in, in his era. Definitely, yeah, yeah, I, I I'd agree with that, yeah. Uh, but this film, the Chinese boxing, does retain some fantastical elements of the Wuxia genre, like uh, like the higher jumping. And at one point, the main character makes his fist stronger by punching iron, not pumping iron, by literally punching iron. So <laughs> it's not not totally realistic. I'm not uh, giving that a go. I like I, I like to pump iron. That's my thing, but I don't like to punch iron. Yeah, it's not not a part of your training program. Can we put a PSA on on to not punch iron? Just don't go out and do it. We don't recommend it. No, exactly. Don't punch iron out there. It's not not a. It's not safe. I presume it's not safe. Anyway, this film was about a main character who fights back against the invading Japanese thugs who said karate was the superior martial art and demolished his martial arts school and took over the town. 
but yeah, Bruce Bruce Lee attended the screening with Steve McQueen and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, two of two of his students, and Bruce. Um, apparently, yeah, and apparently, according to Victor Lam, a Chinese producer who was also at the screening, I, I think this sort of showed Bruce how to show off his fighting technique on film. So he might have taken some inspiration from this, according to him. And it also it did inspire Bruce's hyper competitive nature, because Bruce, after watching that film, he was saying, you know, yeah. I, I can make a film better than this. So That's I do it. think I was it... just going back to my point before, yeah. So he probably seen someone was doing this, and then yeah, they're just inside the competitiveness and the perfectionist in him. He was just like, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it better. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, yeah, definitely. So this film was co-produced by Raymond Chow, who's the one who signed off on on the film, the Chinese boxer, and it was a Shaw Brothers film. So at this time. Raymond Chow was working for the Shaw Brothers, and I believe he was un- unhappy because uh, television was becoming more popular, and Run Run Shaw decided to downsize the movie budgets. So Raymond asked Run Run Shaw if he could form a production company called Golden Harvest under the umbrella of the Shaw Brothers, and Golden Harvest would make half of its own movies. And so the Shaw brothers would distribute them and then they would split the profits. Raymond Chow went around and tried to ask actors, directors um, at the Shaw brothers not to renew their contracts and go with Golden Harvest instead, uh, promising them a percentage of the profits. Jimmy Wang Yu wanted to join Golden Harvest, but was still... Uh, but still had several years left on his contract at the Shaw brothers, so decided to publicly break with the Shaw brothers. Raymond tried to talk him out of it, but Jimmy Wang Yu did it anyway. So the Shaw brothers, they were furious with with what Raymond Chow was doing. And they broke the deal with Raymond about Golden Harvest and fired two of his top lieutenants and forced Raymond to come to work for another week before firing firing him as well. Um, so Jimmy Wang Yu fled to Taiwan. Uh, sure, sought sought an injunction for a Taiwanese court and put advertisements saying that he couldn't work legally. So you know, run, run, sure, not a man you want to piss off. Um, no, definitely not. No, fierce. very fierce. So Raymond was like grapefruits. Exactly, he's got them big apples. Exactly. But Ray- Raymond Shaw, been fired by the Shaw brothers, um, he, you know, he not very happy at this time. So he went to everyone who had a grudge with the Shaw brothers, and um, he, he, yeah, started off his uh, his own. He started off Golden Harvest and and Cafway Films, uh, the Shaw brothers' main rival, went out of business. And gave Raymond their barn-like production studio, which had sound stages. Uh, Raymond raised enough money in three months to open the Golden Harvest for business. Shaw was able to keep most of the top directors. However, Raymond managed to get one director called Lo Wei, who would be very important to this story. Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, the way that they did it in the end, it, it paid off, didn't it? When you think about it, going their own way, going their own route like that, because... 
you know, we'll, we'll discuss the films, obviously, but like you've had so many legendary actors on Golden Harvest. You know, you've had your Jackie Chan's and I think Jet Li's on there now, and like Samuel Hung, and and yeah, so it's um they're quite an iconic films production company, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it very much was like it was a monopoly at the time, the Hong Kong film industry. And basically breaking away and going up against this giant, it was basically the equivalent of like Jeff Jarrett trying to start TNA going up against WWE. It's it was it was basically that kind of situation, really. Mm. Well, um, we know that that turned out, but yeah, <laughs> this, not that comparison. Exactly. This would have been like imagine if Jeff Jarrett had signed John Cena instead of WWE. Oof. That that would have that's basically what the equivalent was. Of uh, of the Golden Harvest signing Bruce Lee instead of the Shaw Brothers, uh, but yeah, but yeah, so so Golden Harvest going up against the giant of the Shaw Brothers at the time, very daunting task ahead of them, and Bruce was about to face a daunting task of his own because on the thirteenth of August, nineteen seventy, Bruce Lee injured his back while trying to lift a hundred and twenty-five pound barbell that day because uh, he didn't on, warm up. Bruce form always you're putting too much weight on there concentrate on that form technique yeah it's 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 bringing back memories of us training in in the 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 uclan gym and trying to trying to get teach me how to do the proper deadlifts yeah but you were instead of a 56 kg you were doing 6 kg exactly exactly if if that if that minus six um (laughs) With your little plastic kiddie weights. Exactly, yeah. How's your gym uh, progress going anyway? You're going to get back in there once all this shit's over with, or are you? Nah. You, uh, you done with it all? Yeah, fucked all that off. I can't be asking. <laughs> I can't. I, I, I've, I've hated it. Always hated going to the gym. Nobody. Uh, most people, average people, don't enjoy it. Yeah, I, I honestly don't. I don't know how you can but, enjoy it. But you do need to be healthy. And that's something I will try and instill with you because you'll pay for it in, um, in later life. So, you know, to, you maybe be a bit healthy. But if you don't enjoy the gym, I never force it on you. But, uh, mm. but your health's important too, Lou. I don't want you getting your type 1, type 2 diabetes, both of them somehow at the same time, and uh, getting your leg chopped off and, you know, and then snuffing it when you're 60. Nobody wants that from you. No, exactly. That's not the kind of legless that I, that I want to be. <laughs> So, um, so, but yeah, basically anyone out there, you know, doing football training or anyone in PE when they say warm up, take it seriously because even someone like Bruce Lee doesn't warm up one day properly. Bang. Does That's his it, man. Your, your stretches, your dynamic stretches, your, uh, static stretches, PNF, ballistics, all that's important, man. Very important. Yeah. You could fuck up yourself. You know, you might think you're above it. No one's above it. Not even Bruce Lee. Yeah, even you stretch out before you do your business with your porn, don't you? Oh yeah, mate. I have to do some some groin exercises. Yeah. You know, could do myself an injury. Anyway, <laughs> you definitely cramped up, haven't you, in the past? Oh, uh, I mean, I mean, you know, yeah. Some some blood has been produced. But um, but as as I say to people, you know, if you ever are like you, you ever are going for a dry spell, and um, uh, and you do you do whack off a bit too much, in uh, and you do see blood. All I say is uh, blood on the shaft. Don't be daft. Blood out the tip. Loosen your grip. That's the way I like to think about it. 
Anyway, so uh, <laughs> Bruce Lee was prescribed three months of bed rest and told that he couldn't do Kung Fu anymore. Um, so not good news for Bruce Lee. Uh, and in the three months, Linda had to work nights, which Bruce didn't want as... Bruce was a patriarchal Chinese husband, you know, very traditional, you know, thinking he should be the breadwinner. So, yeah, Bruce Lee used to write love notes to, to Linda um, as Bruce Lee would be asleep by the time that she got home. So, so Bruce, you know, was actually, actually a loving husband. Anyway, while Bruce was in bed, he read a lot and filled eight, note, eight notebooks with script ideas, quotes from his favourite authors and notes on the Marshall Way. And he also wrote his training methods and philosophy, which after his death was turned into the best-selling martial arts books, The Tale of Jeet Kune Do. Wow. I have to get a copy of that. Yeah, yeah. Shit in that. That shouldn't be insightful. Have you read it or? Me? No, no. I'm still learning how to read. But, uh, That's true. That's true. Very true. You'd have no chance with the uh, the pronunciation in that, would you? No, no, I would no, definitely. Luckily, this was a time before Netflix. Because I imagine, you know, if he was doing this today, he probably wouldn't have got half of that done. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Imagine. Do you think Bruce Lee would have been a big, uh, a big TV buff? He would have had a Netflix account. Oh yeah, he's just probably just watching Cobra Kai and just going, ah, oh, fucking, fucking shit that. Yeah, yeah. This is this point where he's, he's ballooned. He's uh, he's fat. He's aged poorly. He had a bit of a mental breakdown, and uh, yeah, he's now he's just he's he's just a Netflix binger. That's all he does. Yeah, L- lucky Bruce Lee didn't live in the time of Uber Eats. Oh, Oof, get, the getting the munchies. Oh, mm. yeah. After three months of bed rest, he started doing martial arts again. And on the back of his business card, he would keep writing "Walk on" on the back of his business card for motivation. And I imagine he must have run out of space because, because obviously he he was you know he was writing you know walk on through the wind walk on through the rain though your no, dreams might be tossed and blown walk on with no, hope in your heart and you'll never walk That's alone a... you'll That's never a... walk alone walk on with hope in your heart Sounded... and nope. you'll never nope. walk alone. <laughs> What score was it last night? Where are you in the table? Who's got two games in hand on you? I'll edit that bit out as well. (laughs) But Bruce Bruce... sounded more like if you know yesterday, it's enough to make it out go whoa. We don't care what the red shites say. What the fuck do we care? Because we only know that there's going to be a show when the Everton boys are there. Everton, that's the one that was better, wasn't it? So Bruce Lee, obviously a Liverpool fan. But... <laughs> he would have been a toffee defo if he was here. We've got yeah. all the best celebrities support us, man. We've got Sylvester Stallone. We've got uh, Fandango, Daniel Bryan. You know, all blues. There's probably a lot more. We've That's... got Bruce Lee. No. Interesting so I... fact, though. I'll tell you something. Did you know Bob Marley supports Tottenham? Did he, yeah. He did, yeah. He lived in London for like quite. Uh, I think he lived in London. I don't know if he lived in London more than once, but yeah, he lived in London at one point and he's a big football fan. And yeah, supported Tottenham. Mad. He chose the wrong team. Yeah. He did. He did. Mm. But but Bruce Lee, a, a London Liverpool fan, is is what we take away from that that bit there. Just yeah. like you, eh? 
coincidence. Just, just like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, Bruce's back problem uh, would bother him for the rest of his life, but uh, thanks to his, uh, thanks to the the inspire the inspiring words of that song, he would he would you know he'd get better. Anyway, <laughs> do you um do you know specifically what was wrong with his back or what type of injury it was? Um, I don't know to be honest. I I I, uh, I think he yeah just done it in when he was lifting the weights. I'm not a medical expert. I wouldn't Is best like know. Dead, deadlifting maybe and just slipped a disc maybe or something. Imagine. Probably yeah. He, he probably he, he followed Frank Reynolds' um, gym advice. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing with Bruce is um, he definitely overtrained and that's why this injury occurred. Like looking through his training regime, looking at his body, definitely a case of overtraining. Like he probably trained every day of the week without any rest. You, for, to, to, for, to progress to uh, to do to have progressive overload you need rest rest and recovery is vital and he was a little bit like I reckon when if he got older if he would have carried that on he would have been quite frail and his bones would have and his joints would have been very very weak as he got older so there's a little tip for you to make sure that you're getting your recovery in exactly. I know you do that at seven days don't you I I um yeah I mean I, I've been recovering for a long time I just don't do any of the gym workouts but I do the yeah. recovery very well. You're uh, a recovering addict though too. So there's that. Yeah. Well, you know, sober, sober at the moment. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you're yeah. doing well. Yeah. Yeah. My pockets are doing well too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, good, good, uh, good information and advice from the stand in there. Health advice, although that's one of a quality podcast. We do it all. We educate, we inform, we we make you laugh. I hope, and also, yeah, we uh, health and fitness based, aren't we as well? Exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so Bruce Lee, while um, his joints, while his his joints in his body might have been suffering, I imagine a different type of joints. Uh, we're getting on very nicely, as uh, him and uh, as him and as him Sterling Silliphant and James Coburn um, were continuing to work on the film, and they thought that they could get the film backed by Ted Ashley, who worked for Warner Brothers. Uh, and Bruce was invited to an exclusive dinner party at Ted Ashley's house, and I think Ted Ashley was like one of the higher ups, one of the executives at Warner Brothers. And they were invited to a dinner party at Ted Ashley's house where Bruce amazed people with a Kung Fu demonstration. And Ted agreed to fund the film, but said that they had to film in, in <clears throat> said they had to film in India because Warner Brothers had a huge sum of frozen funds in India. And the Indian government didn't allow American film studios to readmit money that. Uh, they made the Indian box office back to the United States. So, yeah, I think I think that Warner Brothers films made in India had to be spent in India, apparently. That's, that's interesting. Very interesting. I never knew that th- these kind of like laws would or rules would exist yeah. before reading. Greg Carly would have had a field day then, wouldn't he? He would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that so, making that dough. Yeah. On January 29th, 1971, 
Bruce Lee, James Coburn and Sterling Sinifant flew to India to scout locations for the next two weeks. And I'm telling you this, this should have been a fucking film. This could have been a, a, a comedy, a buddy comedy film here because this sounds fucking unreal. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Can you imagine the, little, the shit they got up to as well? It was. It, it, it sounds hilarious. I, I don't know why anyone's not made a film on this. So while they were there, Bruce held tryouts for local martial artists because they didn't have any stuntmen, uh, stuntmen that they could fly in. So nine Indian martial artists showed up and Bruce asked, now let's see what you can do. And apparently they all started beating each other up. So... <laughs> <laughs> Already shit it in the fan. Already shit's hitting the fan. Um, while Bruce is there, he said that he uh, he saw poverty like he never saw before. And he also seemed to be getting on James Coburn's nerves, singing in the back seat of the car while they were being driven. And apparently Bruce would do magic tricks and martial arts demonstrations to kids who gathered and applauded. And James Coburn, he'd be annoyed by this because he liked to travel quietly. And so Bruce Lee just continuing to to piss off James Coburn there. <laughs> Difference in personality then. Obviously, yeah. Coburn was a bit more reserved and just wanted there uh, to, to be silent. Oh, that's hilarious, just that image. And so Bruce Lee was a talented um, magician as well then? Yeah, I, ne- I never knew this. I never mentioned it anywhere else in, in his books or in any documentaries apart from this, but apparently so, yeah. Canal, again, it's talented. These people, man, they're just, they can do it all, can't they? And it shows again. Yeah, it's all rounder, all rounder. Um, and yeah, and so Bruce was annoyed by James Coburn, as James Coburn, being the big star, would get the big hotel suites, and Bruce and Sterling Silliphant would get the smaller uh, adjoining rooms. Uh, and apparently, the beds that Bruce had to, to sleep on would pay, play havoc on his back as well. So there was anger at both sides there reserved up and it it does it does very much sound like a buddy comedy it's it sounds like it sounds like it's uh Bruce it's was like, the heel. <laughs> he was the annoying one weren't he it sounds like bruce and james coburn was like it, it sounds like like bruce was the outgoing one um it basically if we it seems like bruce was was will smith and james coburn was colton and uh, and there was a third character who was like, and Sterling Silliphant was like the go-between between between them, basically. Uh, so they got to the beaches of Goa, and they found that it was overrun by Western hippies from America, Germany, and France, and and Britain. And apparently, they all knew Bruce more than they knew James Coburn because they they were fans of the Green Hornet, and um, the hippies invited invited them all to hang out for two days and smoke cash and uh, and talked about how they and talk about how they're gonna adapt their screenplay for india so i don't know why this isn't a comedy <laughs> film this sounds fucking brilliant yeah you'd like to be a fly on the wall there when you're all you'd like to be uh getting stoned with them defo but i bet you coburn was proper surprised as well that he was uh, that bruce was more known and he, he was probably pissing them off gradually day by day he was just getting worse when they got to the Taj Mahal Palace, which was a hotel, Coburn had a massive suite the size of a house. And Bruce said, one day I'll be a bigger star than McQueen and Coburn. 
And Sterling Silliphant said to him, yeah, you are Chinese in a white man's world. He said, there's no way, which was the quote that I used from, from earlier on. Mm. And I, I don't know now, I, I'd probably say Bruce maybe is a bigger star than James Coburn and Stephen Queen. I mean, oh, I don't yeah. know. Certainly for this era of people like who's got more of a legacy, a bigger legacy, it's obviously Bruce. If you ask someone on the street now, Bruce Lee, do you know Bruce Lee or do you know Stephen Coburn? Nine times out of ten, he'd say Bruce Lee. And that. So I'd say as a legacy, definitely Bruce Lee. Maybe mm. at the time, no, maybe with maybe with uh, the old generation, though. Um, even then, though, even then, no, I probably wouldn't say because I mean, I know, say, my mum and dad, they, they know McQueen and they know Coburn, but it's probably the generation, maybe be, even before them, I would say. So maybe like you know, your grandparents' generation, then maybe those people would say McQueen, Coburn, but other than that, though, yeah, Bruce Lee is bigger than them, and you know, deservedly so, really. He did, he did a lot more, he covered a lot more ground than just acting, didn't he? At the end of the day, oh, yeah, I more say influential well... and in many in many aspects yeah definitely i'd say worldwide bruce lee is probably definitely uh more known than james coburn and steve mcqueen just saying a lot like isn't it can definitely definitely but at this time bruce lee yeah definitely the lesser of the, of the lesser star and the less financially well off because uh, he had to make the movie he financially depended on it where sterling Silliphant. Uh, he thought India wasn't right for it, uh, but still wanted to make a Kung Fu film. And James Coburn thought India was artistically wrong for the film. And uh, I think he was sort of souring on the idea, really. And it seems like of the three, Bruce was the one who needed it the most. Um, so James and Sterling offered to help Bruce with his money problems. But Bruce was too proud and refused the offer. Um, and... Yeah, because they couldn't make it in India, the project didn't really go ahead. And uh, Bruce, he felt a bit betrayed by his Hollywood friends and thought Coburn screwed it up. And Bruce and decided, yeah, so... Just got cold feet, essentially. Yeah, just basically, like, the, the whole hassle, you know, the, the trip. <laughs> Although it sounds funny in hindsight, I imagine being there at the time didn't sound like the greatest two weeks. Yeah. And and J- James Indian now is bad, but like fucking hell, imagine it would have been like in the 70s, it would have been manic. Yeah, definitely. And and, and James James Coburn, you know, he's been in a great escape, magnificent seven. You know, he's a Hollywood star at the time. And and Bruce Lee was just a guy from a TV show and, and you know had a film career in, in Hong Kong. You know, not not a massive name. So he was he was probably just like, you know, I, I don't really need this. There's not much in it for me at this time. So so yeah, he probably it, it wasn't. I don't think it was a personal thing because you know they, they were friends, but it was yeah. like I, I don't professionally. I don't need this. Mm. But but you know again, still they offered Bruce financial help. Uh, <clears throat> they offered Bruce financial help, but you know he, he declined it. Typical Bruce Lee fashion. I imagine he was a very very proud man, so he was probably a bit offended by that, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 I don't imagine it helped, yeah. So Bruce pushed on with a project, trying to get Roman Polanski to direct it, uh, but that didn't happen. So Fred Weintraub, an executive at Warner Brothers, approached Bruce with a film called Kung Fu about a Eurasian Shaolin monk in the 1880s who roamed the West righting wrongs with pacifist and Eastern philosophy and martial arts 
Fred Fred was friends with Sire Weintraub, who was the producer of the Tarzan TV series and and Tarzan films, and he was also a student of Bruce, so he recommended Bruce for the role. Uh, Fred met Bruce, and Fred was amazed, and he wanted Bruce to play Kai Cheng Kane, the Eurasian Kung Fu master. The project was going into production until the 1st of March 1970, when Richard Zanuck and David Brown were hired as new executives at Warner Brothers, and they cancelled the project. Uh, and, and Yeah, so not great. Devastating. Um, and another like little on on his road on his journey, another little hiccup for him there, isn't there? Because you you can tell at this point he just wants it so bad. He wants to be the big film star. He's ambitious, but just these little things just kept keep dragging from under him. Definitely, yeah. Uh, apparently, like when new executives take over, they often cancel projects of uh, yeah. rival executives that have come before. Happens all the time. Happened with WCW. Uh, people were worried what's going to happen with with AEW because they got a new TNT exec in a few months back, but apparently they they'll be fine. They're safe. They've got a deal, so and you don't want to get rid of them. But yeah, it happens to WCW, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Interesting. You mentioned WCW. It's very much like sort of the same mentality as Vince McMahon when he gets people coming to the WWE with prior success. He he wants to start them off with one of his ideas instead because I think you know he wants to take credit for their success. Very similar to the executives here, probably they they want to have ideas that that are their own so they can take credit for it rather than you know the person who's left getting credit for the success. So I can understand it, uh, but but again, not not good business practice really. No, um, they love that uh, that creative control, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. Just, just ego as well. I think ego is probably a big part of it. Um, I think that's what Q-Tip made the song about, did he? Could be, could be. Uh, but the consensus was the public also wouldn't accept a Chinese hero. Um, and yeah, so not great at the time. So Fred Weintraub then approached Bruce about being in a film called Kelsey, which sounded interesting, but uh, didn't go ahead. So apparently at the time, Bruce picked up his son and told him not to be an actor. Kind of like how Bruce's father picked him up and told him not to be an actor. And uh, both times didn't work. So uh, not probably the best successful tactic. He probably he probably said it and then looked down and saw Brandon was wearing the, the black and white crow face paint and went, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> what's, what's that? No. <laughs> Do you think Brandon was dressing up as the crow as a kid just throughout his life? He came out the womb as the crow. He ca- he came out. He, he was given birth to on the rafters, mate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, apparently he said to Brandon, "You're going to be the biggest producer in Hollywood, and you're going to be calling the shots." Uh, kind of like the scene in The Godfather, in a way. You know, you're going to be the one uh, pulling the strings. Oh yeah, true that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently Bruce said to him, you know, you can tell everyone who can be a star and who can't be a star, and no one is going to tell you you can't be a leading man because you're Chinese. Um, so, you know, he, Bruce, you know, very much feeling the racial yeah. drawbacks of the time. Bruce getting emotional again, eh? Little sweetheart. Mm, mm. 
So Sterling Silliphant knew Bruce Lee could be a star, and if he had the right part, then then he could make it. So Sterling Silliphant was writing the series that would go on to be called Long Street, about a blind private investigator who would solve crimes. And Bruce claimed would he solve that... the crimes by uh, by his big nose? <laughs> and he would cr- he and he would crawl around crime. like a dog. <laughs> penetration crime, yeah. penetration crime, penetration crime until the the movie just just ends. <laughs> and yeah, Bruce claimed that he gave Sterling uh, the the idea for a show about a blind fighter because Bruce got it from a Japanese film called Zat Zoit Zoitchek something like that Zoitik. Yeah, the he was blind swordsman. His, his films as well, like in terms of watching, and obviously we mentioned his reading, but I imagine he was quite a film buff as well. You know, he um, he was quite in tune with what was going on film wise, and probably music as well. He probably had a, a decent music taste, I imagine. Definitely listening to the old Chaz and Dave. Listening yeah, to Chaz and Dave. As well. yeah. Big big fan of uh, he was definitely a Black Sabbath fan. You could tell. Yeah, yeah. Sterling Silliphant didn't believe Bruce was ready to carry an entire project, but he did write an episode of this series Long Street. Uh, for Bruce Lee to to star in, and it would basically be an episode around Bruce Lee and his teachings, and the episode was called "Way of the Intercepting Fist," which is the English translation of Jeet Kune Do. Mm. With the help of Bruce Sterling, wrote the uh, wrote the character Ling Sung, who was a kung fu master who saves the main character Mike Longstreet from an attack and teaches him Jeet Kune Do. And apparently Sterling based most of Bruce's dialogue from things that Bruce said to him in their lessons. So this is where probably the most famous Bruce quote comes from, which people uh, people play in documentaries to this day when, when they you know talk about Bruce Lee. Empty your mind. Be formless. Shapeless. Like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup put it into a teapot it becomes the teapot now water can flow or creep or drip or crash be water my friend as well i think what bruce didn't mention was was water also it, it tastes like whatever it's been in like you put water into a pepsi bottle and it becomes mm. the pepsi sort of mm. didn't didn't yeah. Yeah, you can have that one, Bruce. You can have that. So while filming Longstreet, Bruce would also be teaching Kung Fu next door, and all the actors went to study with him. He also taught philosophy to people on set, which divided opinions. Uh, this was Bruce's breakout performance on, on Longstreet, because Bruce was, was pretty much playing himself, really. And uh, it looked as though he would get his own show, and that he was going to be a recurring character, on Long Street. On the 10th of April 1971, Bruce called Raymond Chow and they talked about a contract and made an agreement. Uh, Golden Harvest was struggling financially and the Shaw brothers were much more successful. They, they were they dominated the Hong Kong film industry. And Bruce was approached, I think, by the Shaw brothers and he wrote a letter and he asked his friend Unicorn Chan, Unicorn Chan, to pro to pass it on to Raymond Shaw, and the letter demanded a salary of ten thousand U.S. dollars per movie, 
and the right to make changes in the script and total control over fight choreography. And Run Run Shaw sent back an offer, apparently, uh, of 5000 US dollars with no mention of the other two stipulations. And then when Bruce actually asked about the other two stipulations, uh, Run Run just said, tell him to come back, uh, come back here and everything will be all right. So Bruce instead decided to go with Raymond Chow as going with Raymond Chow and Golden Harvest meant that he could have more control over the quality of the, the final product. And apparently, yeah, having control over the quality of the final product was, was more important than, than money for Bruce. Yeah, got that, that Hulk Hogan contract, that creative control. Creative control. The, the uh, yeah, creative control, but without 25% of the uh, the pay-per-view gate. <laughs> yeah, not yet anyway. Not yet. So Bruce signed for Golden Harvest for $15,000 for a two-picture deal on the 28th of June, 1971. Uh, Bruce, however, didn't really have great hopes for these two films, as he didn't really like the quality of the Hong Kong films at the time and didn't know if it was possible to act and fight uh, well at the same time. And he thought Chinese films had been very superficial and one-dimensional. Uh, but Bruce, he took the deal mostly because he needed the money. Yeah, and um, just, I think the inflation-wise, with the 15 grand, that would have translated to 85,000 US dollars. So, not bad. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was fifteen thousand US dollars or fifteen thousand Hong Kong dollars. I'm not too sure, but if if it was, then yeah, that's, that's a pretty good deal to be fair. Uh, but yeah, well, at least by standards at the time, anyway. Mm. So yeah, it's 1971, and Bruce Lee is about to kick off his two picture deal when they start going into production for making the Big Boss. Oh yeah. Big boss, the old you, big boss. You big boss, are you a big boss? Are you a big boss geezer? I don't know about that, but uh, but I'm I'm not I'm not too. Would you I'm, like I'm, to one day be a big boss? I wouldn't mind being a big boss one day. Yeah, big boss of what? Eh? Eh? Uh, yeah. Who? Eh? 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 Yeah. But yeah. So now, so now is finally the time Bruce Lee gets to star in his own film. And that's where we'll join you next time on the That's Why They Were Quality podcast. Yep, so peace out, geezers. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, That's Why They Were Quality podcast. Instagram, That's Why They Were Quality. We've got a website there, That's Why They Were Quality.com. And obviously subscribe to Geezer Nation YouTube channel where there's more content coming as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm loving the journey at the moment, Lou, and I can't wait for the next part. Yes, geezer. I, I'm I'm loving the journey as well. Thanks again for for joining me on the journey, and uh, and we'll see you next time where Bruce Lee finally gets his chance to to become the big boss. Yeah. Oh.